I guess for introductions, I'm Michael. I'm Christian. We're filling in for Tucker and Carly again. And this is Pillows. Is it in the windows or on the windows? On the windows, I believe it oh, is. Oh, it's Pillows on the windows. Yes. Okay. And this is Pillows on the windows. Um, I guess it could be in the windows, too. I mean, technically speaking. Yeah, I mean, you could do either. You could do under the windows, but I don't want to... I'm not here to interrogate Tucker's yeah. choice in, in podcast names. Would you ever put pillows on your windows, Michael? That's something I I'm would not. wondering. No? I, I don't. What's the, is there like a, a practical use for this? Yeah, the, the lore, the deep lore of pillows on the windows is that I guess Tucker and Carly would do this. They would put their pillows on their windows to make it darker so that it was easier to see the movie film. Oh, okay. That's, that's going in the, the wiki. Yeah, heck yeah. Did you ever do anything similar with your windows? Nope. No. Uh, mm, no. Any no, no, fun no, no. kid movie stuff? Mm, uh, no, not that Gosh, I can think of off the top of my head. I know I'm boring. When I was little, I we just, had we had these like uh, vinyl, uh, like little <clears throat> pop up things, like these <clears throat> pop up tents. Yeah. And we would pop those up in our basement and then I'd cover them with blankets and then like plug in a TV into an extension cord and then like put the TV inside one of these pop up tents. And there's just something I really liked about that as a kid, those pop up tents, because it felt like it was my own house inside of this bigger house that wasn't mine. And so that is how I watched The Matrix Reloaded. (laughs) I like where that went. Um. I don't know. That sounds nice. I just, I don't, I never really, like, I guess I was one of those kids that you could probably see within like three or four feet of a television screen and just look up at cross-legged and go, Ooh, uh, Thomas, the tank engine. Tell me more about how Gordon's been a bad train. Yes. Um, but yeah. So speaking of, of, of childhoods, Mm -hmm. uh, today we watched cartoons. We did. In particular, them Japanese cartoons that all the kids are are talking about on their vines and their their MySpaces. Um, so, kind of playing off of I guess last week where we did a lot of Japanese films, and I think you watched your first anime movie, really. Yeah. Not counting Spirited Away, right? Yep. You got it. So, kind of playing off of that uh, for this week. We watched a mess of Studio Ghibli and Studio Ghibli adjacent films. Mm-hmm. Um, this would be, and none of these were spirited away. So, because nope. I wanted to, I was hoping to kind of introduce you to things that maybe you hadn't seen yet. Yeah. Um, and Spirited Away is kind of like this canon that's like this canonized film that seems like it's in its own totally little. It's like its own shelf where maybe there's. It, it, it's it's it has a different presence, I think, than totally. than the deeper, than the rest of the the Ghibli canon. It's got its own shelf at Hot Topic. Even I feel like every time I walk into a Hot Topic, <laughs> there's like a shelf, and it's got the it's got all the Spirited Away stuff. <laughs> no faces here, exactly. and the rest can go down here. <laughs> exactly. Um. But yeah. So, I guess. What I'm kind of curious about is is what your general impressions were. I mean, I kind of recommended you a lot of movies, and by Jove, you had them all watched within a matter of days. So, what do you what do you think? 
I thought <clears throat> this this latest movie watching session, I think, was a bit more of a roller coaster than the Yakuza movies were. Really? I mean, we had some pretty low lows in Yakuza. Yes, we did. We certainly did. And I don't think we didn't have the similar lows. You know, I think Yakuza was a speed bump, whereas yeah. these uh, six Ghibli movies, I think they ebbed and flowed for me in an interesting way. OK. That I wasn't quite anticipating from, you know, Ghibli, the studio heralded as the doer of no wrongs in the anime sphere, as far as a normie like me is aware. OK. OK. So I don't know how we want to kind of poke at this then um i'm curious because th so th the films that we that i that i we i kind of recommended you the ones that we watched were ones that i think kind of track the formation of ghibli in a way mm, interesting okay you get to a certain point um spirited ways in there somewhere too yeah and then we get to kind of the last three movies kind of give us a, a, a denouement or what was supposed to be kind of the, the denouement to, to studio Ghibli. These were going to be like the last films before mm -hmm. you had the greats kind of retire yeah. and people started kind of going their own way. Um, and yeah, I think there is a lot in there. There's, there is some give and take, there's some ebb and flow. Um, but to kind of start with, we started outside of Ghibli and that would be with Lupin the Third, uh, Castle mm -hmm. of Cagliostro, yes, and with Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind, which are both actually not Studio Ghibli films, even though they're kind of lumped in there because they're uh, Hayao Miyazaki's first two movies. Ah. And he's if there's if Ghibli is is the the entity that can do no wrong, which it can do wrong. Yeah. Um, I feel like people kind of overlook the fact that there's a lot of very. They'll remember Mononoke. They'll remember. They'll remember uh, Spirited Away. Yeah. They won't really talk about maybe some issues those movies have, and they definitely will overlook some of the other things that exist in this repertoire. But if they can do no wrong, then I then Miyazaki's like the 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 patron saint of that if, if yeah he's there he's like the golden child he's the one who directed their biggest movies he's the one behind mm -hmm. spirited away mononoke totally. uh castle in the sky totoro those kinds of films um and he's the one he's who came back later and kind of resurrected ghibli right they're working on another movie yeah and that's what's kind of weird because i think one of those last movies in particular works as a swan song. And I think it was meant to be that way. <laughs> yeah. And now it's not. Weird. Um, and it, it, it does. I think it does feel a little strange yeah. that. Uh, it, it, yeah. Yeah. So it's no, we're not. Miyazaki is the one who's kind of reviving it now after it went on hold and people kind of went their own ways. Um, but yeah. So he starts, though, actually, as an animator. He's He's got, like, before he gets to Cagliostro, he's got well over a decade of experience in the animation field. He's also directed a couple series at this point. I think, like, Future Boy Conan's the famous one that he ends up doing. So he's, he's like, a, a name at this point. Okay. And then he does Lupin the Third. Um, and then after that, he does his own, which Lupin the Third's based off of an existing property. Mm -hmm. He takes a lot of liberty with that property, it, apparently. But um, 
it's interesting. I think that that, that movie, I think, is interesting because people are point to it as is this. I think at some point someone has asked whether or not this is is this an influence to uh, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Wow. There's references to the clock t- f- t- uh, the clock tower fight scene in that film, actually, in a couple other movies. Um, so oh, it's wow. it's got an influence. People do have some kind of love for this this one f- film, and then he goes on to make his own. Original, his first original movie, which is Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind, which I think really starts getting into a lot of what Ghibli, what Studio Ghibli kind of prides itself on down the road. Yeah. Um, so I guess, what did you think of those two films to begin sure. with, Christian? Lupin the Third. <clears throat> I'm going to be completely frank, brutally honest with you, Michael. I'm going to pull no punches today while we talk oh, about no. these six anime films. And I thought Lupin the Third was pretty boring. I was pretty checked okay. out. I fell asleep twice during my first watch of the movie and I had to watch it a second time just to make sure that I didn't miss anything. And I don't think I did. Okay. This is a fair assessment. Give me, give me the raw Uh, crystal, Michael. How does it feel uh, to experience uh, Lupin the third as Miyazaki intended? I don't know what to tell you really. I, it's one of those ones where I think it's an outlier in that it's kind of the least, how do I want to word this? It's definitely him not playing with his own product, even though he definitely takes it in his own direction. Like, get, like stuff like Loop in the Third being, he's like your charming thief character, but he's he has a heart of gold in this movie, and that's yeah. apparently not typical for the series. Okay, so he's more of a scumbag, typically? Or that's, kind of I guess, because I can't say, because I haven't actually seen Lupin the Third outside of this film, which gotcha. is a weird thing to kind of square because I guess it's a it was a very popular series at the time. It's one of the longest running manga series. Okay, um, is it a TV show too? It's a TV show, okay. and I actually I think Miyazaki had some role in the TV show before he made the movie. Oh, wow. um, I mean, it just it literally it actually just had another film released. That's right, the CG animated one. Yeah, yeah, and they. They just, I think, finished localizing it. And they're going to release it here, maybe even this month. But, um, but yeah, so he's kind of playing with other people's toys in that sense. Yes. Um, what I guess, I don't know how I want to really talk about Hit this me, any further. I, I'm an open book. So what kind me. of? So I think a lot of people point to it kind of like, oh, they like the swashbuckly side to it. Um, goofy cartoon characters do adventure things. There's booby traps yeah. and, and political intrigue. <laughs> but uh, I'm curious as to kind of why, why you think it didn't really gel with you. The setup especially, I thought there was a lot happening and I had a hard time grasping onto something because there's just so much happening. Like it begins with Lupin and his partner in crime hauling sacks of fat cash out of a casino and then they're driving in a car with all the money in it. And then Lupin is like, oh, this money's fake. So they decide to go to where word on the street says the fake bills probably come from. But then on their way there, they see a bunch of dudes in suits and sunglasses and a high speed chase with a woman in a dress. And so they start chasing them for some reason. And then 
like Lupin saves the girl, but then she she gives him her glove and there's a ring in it. And he he wants to to go to the castle with the symbol on the ring. And then he he wants to see the girl again because I guess he saw her before. I he also seems to kind of want to stop the counterfeit bill operation that I didn't quite understand. I don't know what is I, I don't know. Why, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this, Michael? Why is Lupin the third? going on this whole journey <laughs> um you know it's hmm my impl- the implication i always got when i watched this movie was that there was like a history between lupin and uh i think her name is clarice gotcha princess lady yeah princess lady got it that there was some kind of history there um at least that was the implication i always got from the movie yeah and that that kind of made it make a little more sense Gotcha. Um, if you were to like dissect this under a cold, if like you were to give this movie to to an actual hypothetical master thief, and Ooh. he was looking at this, and he's like, "Oh, this is not how you would do. Why would you get rid of high quality counterfeit bills? They're still usable." Yeah. Um, because I imagine, yeah, if you actually hold held this up to like a, if you were to try to logically define everything that's going on here some of it probably doesn't mm-hmm. work. Yeah. Um, you can take that further. There's like, why is there, uh, why is there a samurai character yes. in the middle of Europe? <laughs> um, why, uh, why is Interpol trying to arrest Lupin for the crime of stealing Clarice's heart? <laughs> That's right. Uh, like there, there are things like that. Yeah. And then there's, it, it gets, I don't know. I think what I liked about it is that it does. I appreciated it being a little more lighthearted. I appreciated uh-huh. it being a little more, being a little more swashbucklery. Totally. The same way, like in the same ways that I like the first Indiana Jones movie, it had a lot of that. A lot of there was like there was a shared DNA there that worked for me. I hear you. Yeah, yeah. It's um, definitely swashbuckly in that way that there's not like heavy tension in moments you're not supposed to be holding your breath so to speak for most of it because they're just you know flying a helicopter they hop into this plane and then they're flying it through gunfire and everything's fine you know the princess is sitting there on the on the roof of a building and one of the guys says to a dude with a machine gun do it and he shoots like 50 bullets and they all just happen to miss her it's fine yeah yeah. Yeah. So like you like your 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 pulpy action yes. movie nonsense stuff. And I think I like that filtered more through a cartoon lens because it got you were allowed to exaggerate it a little uh-huh. more. Yeah. You get a little more expression from the characters in a way that's not too tense or doesn't take itself too seriously. I tend to like movie with politics, but I kind of enjoyed this being divorced from that in a way. Yeah. Um, like they, it didn't feel like we're like, I feel like I could just sit down and watch it and get, all right, I want cartoon characters doing goofy heist adventure. Um, booby trap stuff is there. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's kind of, yeah. Totally. So that's, that's kind of where I'm coming from with this, but. I have never watched an Indiana Jones movie, Michael, and I'm kind of afraid to. 
I don't know. <laughs> I don't I don't know if I want to because I've you know, I've heard for the entirety of my life here on this planet that they're all phenomenal and they're great swashbuckling adventures. And I like the Uncharted video games, which are similar in many respects, but <clears throat> I don't like the swashbuckling stuff. It's not I have a hard time enjoying it in and of itself. I get. <clears throat> I don't know why. I don't know why, Michael. What's wrong with my brain? Like it when when they're swimming underneath the castle and like one of them gets caught in all the cogs and they're trying to swim back up the current waterfall so that they don't fall down and they're like sneaking in. I guess my problem was that I didn't I wasn't really super invested in them sneaking in. <clears throat> I, I don't know. I guess the, the lack of a serious tone made me be like, oh, whatever. They're going to save the day, I guess. So <clears throat> do all the silly stuff. Okay. Man, I can't imagine what it would be like going from Uncharted then to Indiana Jones. Yeah, <laughs> totally. It's, it's all interesting. It's it would all be lost on me, Mike. All the Uncharted interesting. Indiana Jones stuff is lost on me. Oh, no. Um, I can tell you uh, an Indiana Jones one would be fun just as like a thought experiment, not to actually watch all of them because, boy, uh, at least two of them have aged very, very poorly. <laughs> Sign me up. Yeah, oh, baby. Um, but so the reading, but so one of the things I kind of wanted to touch on here is you do get a bit of, I think, early Miyazaki isms from this. Okay. Okay. Hit me with them. What do we got? I'm thinking through my sentence right now. Totally. Ooh. No worries. Just with like, I think, just think with the way that they try to create kind of a lived in space. Ah, okay. Where that's interesting. characters are moving in a way that doesn't where where like the things that are happening aren't moving in a way that's really recycled. It seems as though there's an intention. Yeah, they're cartoon characters, but there's an intention like there's an intention behind mm-hmm. movement. There's an intention behind things that are happening in the background. Um there's I think those are kind of the things that key off to that kind of cue me in on it. That you've got this kind of fantastical, and I, I'm using the word fantastical loosely here, but yeah. this fantastical environment in that it doesn't really abide by any particular setting. You, it's just kind of if I was to throw, pick something out of a hat and say, make a European country. Ooh. That's kind of what they tried to do here. So there's a yeah. bit more of a. Which I think is something that kind of comes up a lot in in Miyazaki stuff down the road, and a lot in Ghibli stuff down the road. Interesting. With because I think Nausicaa kind of taps into into an imagined European esque ah, environment. Okay, yeah, Castle yeah, yeah. Castle the Sky does. Yes, uh, and those are just two of the ones we watch, and it comes up in a couple other places too. Got it. But stuff like that, I think it kind of things that it, it's rooted in a reality, but it's still fantastical. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, cuz we got we got Lupin driving around cars like it's modern day at the time, late 70s or whatever. And then they go to this castle where there's a princess and stuff uh drama like yeah. medieval ages stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah. Like it it doesn't play by a specific uh Yeah, it just it doesn't it it doesn't play by a set. I'm sorry, I had someone come into the room. No worries, you're all good. Um, by like a, a set 
it, it plays by a lexicon, but not necessarily like you. I, you don't get the impre- You get the impression that maybe you know if this was made today, it'd be made by Miyazaki looking through Wikipedia articles and stuff <laughs> like that, but with yeah. no actual like <laughs> devotion to not not with like that that serious devotion to fact you're not setting this with you're not going out of here making a period drama you're not going out of here mm. making a very specific yes. like like you're not you're not we can't have the car blow up this way that's yeah not realistic we can't have mountains here they wouldn't be mountains facing this kind of a valley mm-hmm. why do we have the luxembourg in the in the and the southern france here kind of stuff yeah, yeah yeah you don't have that at all totally Instead of just kind of like an environment where you can have these goofy claw assassin guys because <laughs> yes. and this power struggle written into this this European country's history, but you don't have to care that it's it's you don't have to care whether or not that that's actually what's happening. Yeah. And it gives you kind of that room to have these goofy things like like Resident Evil esque key ring <laughs> traps or whatever. Yeah, you plug them in to the top of the giant clock, Michael, and then something happens. <laughs> uh, the Boster appears. Yes. Where does where does Lupin the Third fit into uh, this movie? Where does this movie fit into the the lexicon? How how do people look back on the castle of Cagliostro? I think people like it. I think you get comment. Yeah, like if you were to go through. I think people like it. I think it's not looked at as this weird. I don't think it's as looked down upon as some other films might be. And like Ghibli movies specifically. Yeah. Okay. Even like, even like considering Ghibli movies, I think people kind of hold it up to that. Like this hits some kind of Miyazaki standard or this hits some kind of standard that makes it a, a, some have some objective quality of a good film. Hmm. Um, I know, I guess Lupin fans were kind of pissed off when it first came out because it was so unlike the, their actual, the, the, the manga series. Yes. But. Is this like um, a standalone movie? There's no, as far as you're aware, yeah. lead in to this in any I, way? I don't believe there is. I think it's gotcha. entirely standalone, but I might be wrong on that. Gotcha. Um, I guess it's interesting because I was looking at this up beforehand. So there are. If you were to like watch other cartoons after this movie was made, mm-hmm. like a handful of them, like The Great Mouse Detective and also the Batman the Animated Series actually have clock tower fights similar ah, to this one. Interesting. Um and I guess I was also I, I was looking this up right before we jumped in and it sounds like there was also on the Simpsons movie oh. staff someone who was real keen about this film. Really? So there's like a little re- visual reference to to some of the mannerisms within this movie, within the Simpsons movie. No way. But, but yeah, it's not like we're not, we're not talking the high canon or anything like that. Okay. I don't think people are going to tire and feather you for not liking this one. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Michael. No, you're good. (laughs) I'm trying. I'm trying, Michael. I tried very hard. You're good. I think you're good. I'm surprised you watched it twice. Props to you. I tried, Michael. I tried so hard. But what I watched immediately after Lupin the Third was Nausicaa. And that was like someone just shot me with adrenaline like immediately once I started watching Nausicaa because I wasn't tired anymore. And I was freaking loving the setting. I really like Nausicaa's setting a lot. It's freaking metal, man. 
<laughs> metal? Yes. Uh, yeah. Let's talk Nausicaa. I like Nausicaa a lot. Really? This is I, this is another – is this a pre-established property? Was this something before uh, Miyazaki got his paws on it? Miyazaki wrote the manga. Whoa. Wrote and drew the manga. Really? So it's his, it's his story entirely. Holy it's original crap. to him. Um, he took it and turned it into a feature-length movie. Uh, I was reading a couple essays by him, and it sounds like it was hard, really hard for him to do that. But, but yeah, so this is all original now. We're in like, Whoa. like we're in Miyazaki, the creator. Ooh, I was not aware. Mode. That's insane that he came up with all this. All this was in Miyazaki's brain. Yeah. So, what do you think of the movie overall? I really, really dug it. I think a lot of that okay. is because of the setting and just like a lot of, man, that's cool. Like they're riding bird mounts that run on two legs like chocobos. That's awesome. Yeah. Or the giant bugs and like the bug carcasses. Yeah. And they look like these weird, disgusting, nasty shellfish type things. That's freaking awesome. Or even just the cute little fox squirrel that she has on her on her shoulder that'll go with her everywhere while she rides this freaking awesome glider thing. <laughs> Just so yeah. much freaking awesome in this movie, Michael. And I like how, yeah, because I agree with you, like it's freaking awesome and stuff. But I also like how everything's very, the way it interacts with the world, the way it exists within that world, works according to that world. Ah. Like it feels like things make sense. Yes, it feels like like we're playing by the rules of the world. We don't really break from that, but it's still those rules kind of let you have these crazy. Let's see. Let's see. Have these giant bugs who, when they die, can be used for tools in a way. Yeah. Or yeah. Like I love that scene there where she's she. For starters, I love just kind of the detail where it's she dislodges it by being able to blow it open by using gunpowder. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's so awesome. Like that's just like, that's just something that would come out of someone's brain that like someone who's just making a movie to make a movie would not put in there because she wants to get this eyeball thing off of, out of this giant bug carcass. And so she takes her gunpowder and sprinkles it around the part of the eye and then uses like her flintlock musket to like cause a spark to ignite the gunpowder to kind of burn out some of it so that she can get it out. Like that's well, you don't come up with this when you're just telling a regular story. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah and those are those kinds of details that, I think really kind of sell. Help, I think it helps sell this movie. Yeah. In that it it does. Like it when I say it feels like a lived in world, I, that's kind of what I'm referring to. There, like things are happening that feel thought out and real by like the standards of this environment. Mm -hmm. um, I I love kind of the way the environment itself is presented here, the way the forest works the way it's supposed to yes like it's this it's it's acidic and everything and evil but the reason it's acidic is because of it's been polluted but it's also kind of functioning as a natural filter for all of that mm -hmm. um where you get to this part where they're talking about why the valley is safe well the valley has been able to be safe because we get this wind coming from the sea yes so like there's a there's a, a logic to that yes and we even um, like see the wind early on when she's going back to her home and there's like these weird thingies that are spinning they're like spinning yeah. in the wind that's really cool yeah 
and it just it feels realizing that way it feels like you've got and then you've got all these different tech things they throw in there or like i guess the te- I, I use tech and technology when i actually mean just kind of like things yes. or like the the glider it, it you can kind of tell the the inspiration for that is they wanted to work like a glider and like a kite mm, yeah. and it works like that it works exactly how you'd want it to yeah. work if that was the image you had yeah um the planes fly like planes, which is a, a reoccurring thing through all these movies. Like you can tell Miyazaki loves planes. Yeah. I freaking like love his... the planes in this movie, dude. They're like freaking yeah. massive gunships. Yeah. They're awesome. And you get that you get that battle scene. I like I love that. Like that air battle. It, like the planes are they're doing yes. what they do. They look they're acting like they act. Like it looks like we were taking a page out of uh out of like a, a World War Two like aces high kind of thing yeah or uh or i can't think of i can't think of the name of the movie there's that the like this classic bomber movie and it feels like we're taking bits and riffs off of that are you talking about george um, lucas's red tails <laughs> i'm talking about uh michael bay's pearl harbor actually ah, of course yes that classic um yeah so it just it feels like things are working the way you want them to work like the tanks move like tanks, the wind moves like wind, the 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 environment functions like an actual environment. Things feel thought out and feel like they exist in this world rather than thought up as like a this would be cool if we do this, this would be cool if mm. if we do that. Yeah. Um which I think really helps then when we have this story where we've where we've got this story kind of about how people are fighting against that. And then it becomes this conflict of, you know, like humanity versus the environment mm-hmm. and how do they, can they live together or, and who's kind of at fault if they don't. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. 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 Is there anything about Nausicaa you aren't too fond of Michael? Not particularly. No. Like I, I, just the, the way things kind of play out in it too, I really, really like. I feel like Nausicaa's a maybe she, she if you were to. It's a little weird how just how adapt she is yeah. at at this. Like she has the answer to everything yeah. in a way, absolutely. But at the same time, I think they kind of build that in a way where it's like, okay, it's believable in that you know she's been spending all this time out there she under she she's made it a point to try to understand how this world works mm-hmm. you can see that um they talk about they do kind of hint at some of the training and stuff people do to kind of learn how to wa- ride those gliders and stuff so it, may, it makes sense by the rules of the world yeah but at the same time as far as like a storytelling mechanism it's it is a little weird to have the main character just be able to be that have it well, actually, I don't even know if you can say that, though, because it seems like she's very good at navigating kind of the the physical events that happen. Yeah. But not so much a lot of the, the human events, like the, the political things that are mm-hmm. happening. Yeah, definitely. Um, so maybe I don't know. Actually, I'm going to take back what I said there because <gasps> I think I think she, she's still I think they do give her kind of a character flaw in that way in yeah. that she's she can navigate the 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 swamp land whose name which i'm forgetting the name here well i don't but remember she can navi- 
it was very ominous. It was a very ominous name. But yes. she can navigate that easily. She can navigate the wild. She can fight well mm-hmm. and all of that. But when it comes to actually understanding people, she that's kind of like the character flaw. Yeah. So maybe that's a little more believable than I was going to give it credit to here. Um, and I guess just in general, I like how I, I, I don't I actually I don't know if I have any real beefs per se with the film. It maybe runs a little long. Yeah. But that's outside of that. I think things work the way I kind of want them to. I think the plot kind of develops the way I want it to. Yeah. It feels like every character's motivation makes sense mm-hmm. for that character. Yeah. Which is good. Yeah. The thing that the thing that I uh, scratched my head at it a little bit was uh, the first like 30 minutes I was into it. I was digging this like freaking metal post-apocalypse bug filled world yeah and then she glides back home and then she's wearing like this i don't know like dress thing and then she's sitting with all of these you know medieval people in their medieval looking town and talking about medieval politics and that's where i was like oh i've seen this like 50 times before like the, the way all of this looks and the way all of this feels i'm not liking this right now but then we've got this massive gunship that just crashes out of nowhere and then i'm back on board yeah, okay. So there was a little bit there, and we don't really go back to that stuff very often. Well, we'll we, you revisit like her family and whatnot, the people that she, the people in her um, home city or hometown, because it's about to be under siege. But <clears throat> that's that that one portion. I was like, oh, I don't want to get stuck in this rut here in this town. And thankfully, you don't. And I right. appreciated that. You see, I kind of liked some of that medieval stuff Ooh, in a way yes. that it, it I liked how it was it was like a Final Fantasy world that made sense yeah Ooh. like I Ooh. like some of that I mean you mentioned the chocobos yes. and I guess that's kind of what led me to that comparison Absolutely. but I it just it I think we're in another case where it's like we're making an imaginary European town and I kind of like seeing what that looks like yeah um and as a part of that, you get kind of what's their relationship with the environment? Well, you can get the impression that they're kind of more in tune to the things that are happening uh, in the forests and stuff like that yes. than than others might be. Um, and I think it sets that up pretty okay. And and it just seems like I, as far as like an actual setting, yeah. maybe yeah, I've seen it before, but I thought this was one of the better executions for that. Nice, yeah. Um, and I kind of liked how that blended then with the this more wrought iron mm-hmm. uh, World War Two like thing we've got going on once the gunship appears and then once the the uh, one of the other nations actually invades. Yeah. Where and how those how those mesh? So you get like the situation where you have the knights in armor, but they've got machine guns, mm-hmm. and and you've got these tanks, but they're in a like they're in a village with castles and yes, stuff. Yes, totally. And it and it just I liked how all of that kind of came together. Um, it, it made for a nice contrast, I think, which is kind of I think maybe a little unfortunate when you introduce they introduce the third nation here, the one that's been kind of bullied around by the the one with the tanks and stuff. Yeah, because you don't really get a sense as to what. I mean, your only real introduction to that is is the your male lead character. Uh yeah 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 yeah. yeah. And outside of that, it's just like they're you, you get the sense maybe they're also kind of a technologically advanced superpower in a way, but not enough to fight off giant bugs, I guess. Yeah. Um, 
But at the same time, I also feel like maybe that would have bogged this movie down with mm-hmm. way too much. Yeah. But there is a history there. There's like a history to this movie and the world. And I really like towards the end when uh, they're talking about this great giant thing throughout the course of the movie where they're like the apocalypse or whatever kind of began or this phase of our existence began with the great giants causing this massive fire or whatever, blowing a bunch of things up. And then they're trying to recreate one of these great giants and they Mm -hmm. kind of do and they just yank it out while it's still like rebuilding itself or whatever. And it's just like this disintegrating sludge that's firing these freaking awesome anime explosion beams at this horde of bugs. Gosh, that looks awesome. And gosh, I just, just in concept, that's freaking awesome. Yeah. And it looks good. It does. Like the whole, like the, as it crests the mountain, it's kind of falling apart. You see oh. like its torso separate. Man. And it's all goopy, but it's still, it looks, uh, it just, it looks good. Um, I really like what well, we're kind of talking about. Or I guess while well, I'm kind of talking about what the way things look in hijacking this, unfortunately, yes. I apologize, no. Christian. No, Michael, take us away. The bugs, um, they look post-apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. I like you using the word metal because, yeah, they look freaking metal. <laughs> but there's also the way they're kind of animated and the way they move. Um, I think Miyazaki and crew do a real good job at like being able to wrench out a bit of a bit more than that like a bit more than just cool yeah like there are times they look i think genuinely cute yeah uh there are times where they're able to draw like genuine sympathy but despite being kind of like this grotesque bug monster yeah like when the one's limping home mm-hmm. you get the is following nausicaa back to the forest because she's been able to lure it away yep and it's limping like i feel like the way they, sh- they that it's portrayed and the way it's moving gives it a bit of like you can tell it's in pain and with that like to me that that brought a convincing sense of like sympathy for it like oh my gosh it's in pain absolutely or when the bug monsters are subdued and they're just kind of moving around like like animals Mm -hmm. i like that and it, it in a way they sometimes even look cute and i think that's one of these strengths here with the way that Miyazaki is designing the environment and the way Miyazaki is designing these creatures and what lives in that environment is that he's able to make these foreboding things have a little more nuance than just, you know, like a, a, like a giant bug monster out of some kind of RPG or something. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. You grew to love the bugs the way Nausicaa did. Oh yeah. It helped that they had the little puppy bug, but yes. They also have those big eyes, those big kawaii desu eyes, but they have a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, many eyes, bug chan. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, I, yeah, I just, I, I liked all of that. I feel like, and that's, I feel, these are where I think you get strengths as far as Studio Ghibli and as far as Miyazaki in particular that they're able to kind of ring out these details and the way things move and the way things look and interact with the environment that make it all very believable and nuanced and like a, a real world rather than just an animation, yeah. an animated world. I think I read somewhere Miyazaki said something like it takes him, what, what was it? It takes him like a couple months to do like 10 minutes of animation. Mm-hmm. That's... I'd, 
insane. That's mind boggling. Yeah. Why would you do that to yourself, Michael? That's just I don't that's bonkers. And I almost feel guilty watching a movie like this in the over the course of two hours. If it took someone, you know, like two years to do this. Yeah. And but I think the end result kind of speaks to that and that you have something that seems a little more. It just it feels more realized. I don't yeah. want to say realistic, but it feels more like a, a for feels more re- realized. Um, this kind of it's interesting too in the way this kind of contrasts to a lot of animation in general at the time and now, and a lot of what it seems like Miyazaki and Ghibli tries to push back against, mm-hmm. which is a lot more of this. I mean, if you read read like interviews with Miyazaki or you read some of his writings from way back yonder he kind of is like openly detestful for a lot of what is not like what would become anime okay interesting yeah 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 um a lot of, because it's so they're because they're on a, a this like weekly deadline we have to get the next episode of mobile suit gundam out now kind of thing yeah so they recycle a lot there's a lot of moments where it tries to it, it works more like a, a comic book than it does a uh, uh, something that's animated and that you get these kind of like stills and then an internal monologue. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of recycling, a lot of, a lot of, he, he talks, there's one where he talks at length about how running and walking is animated. Uh-huh. And it's, I think, illuminating in a way because it kind of shows, because he kind of goes into like, well, you can't really, it's hard to animate running and walking in a way that's actually convincing. Interesting. And it, 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 and I think there's an intention to try to make it convincing on his part while in a wider, more syndicated television series, they can't really do that because they don't have the time and the budget to do that. Yeah. Um, it also, he also goes into like, you know, artistic control and stuff like that. Where's the animator in this? Is he a cog in the machine that's being burned out by this crazy, uh, self-eating snake <laughs> yeah or it, like like it's stuff like that and that's a tension that existed in in the field at the time and he talks at length about it and it feels like a lot of his movies are in a way try a i don't want to say a, an outright rebuttal because i imagine if you go to into like a studio you're going to have a lot of the same mm-hmm. you're going to feel crunch time you're going to feel people being worked hard but it seems like there's an intention to be more more realistic with your movements, make people move the way you want them to move, make the environment move the way you want it to move rather than just try to recycle things because it'd be easier and more cost effective and cheaper. Yeah. Um, and then there's also more of like that tension with, with trying to make the environment work like an environment. He mm-hmm. complains about how Mecca during, at the time have these Wunder, like these single Wunder kids who know how to pilot this robot. Yeah. When in reality it would be more, if you were to do this as a more realistic grounded thing, the robot would be, you know, you'd have more of a characterization of the crew working on the robot. You'd have more of that, that this like kind of the way he handles planes and stuff like that. Mm. You have a bit more – you need a bit more technical skill to be able to handle these things. There's training. There's kind of a, a 
there there needs to be this full crew backing it and putting it together. Yeah. You can't have these kind of goofy cartoony excesses because they're they're not practical. Like this isn't what it would be look like. And he tries to push back on that by making an environment that okay, yeah, you have giant planes that are bigger than actual planes. Yeah. And they look a little doofy, but they also look like things that people were talking about making back in the 30s and 40s and 20s and, te- and teens mm-hmm. during early aviation. So there's like a precedent there. Um, and they kind of hulk and move the way that they would. When they get shot, they get shot the way that yeah. a plane would get shot. And you get that like puff of smoke shooting out and stuff like that. Fascinating. Miyazaki seems like a fascinating man. Yeah, yeah. He seems like he might not be fun at parties, but he seems kind of grab like he's got he he seems kind of grumbly at times, yeah. but I'm glad the man who shakes his fists at Gundam being too unrealistic because people can just hop into them and use them is also the man who sits down and puts in the work to make his own films. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So speaking of his own films. Yes. Do you feel kind of good about where we are at Nausicaa and want to move on? Absolutely. Or? Yeah. Let's do it. So how'd you, so let's, I guess let's do this chronologically. I believe next would be Castle in the Sky, correct? Castle in the Sky. I think you might be right. So what do you think of uh, Laputa? Laputa. As some people might call it. Laputa. Like it has, like it has the alternating titles. Sometimes it's Laputa Castle in the Sky. Sometimes it's just Castle in the Sky. Oh. Um, oh. What do okay. you think of it? What do you think of this little movie? This little I movie right it. here. I liked okay. Castle in the Sky. It was so this was the first one I watched, and it was the first Miyazaki film I was exposed to other than uh Spirited Away. And so I was surprised. Mm-hmm. I was like, whoa, this is just a good old fun cartoony time. Cause it starts off with um like well, it starts off with like an airship siege and stuff like that, so we get kicked off right away, and then little girl falls down from the airship. She's got fancy special heirloom necklace thing. And then she's trying to run away from the pirates who just sieged the ship that she was on or whatever. And there's fun chase sequence where the pirates are chasing her on the railroad and they're running away. Her and her little boy buddy that she found, they're running away. And then the pirates go into town and then a couple of them have like a buff off where they like flex (laughs) their muscles and their shirts rip open and they're like smiling and winking at each other. And I was not anticipating seeing anything on that echelon in a Miyazaki movie. But it's fun. It is. I like that a lot. That, that muscle fight (laughs) where they're just like, who has the biggest muscles and they rip their shirts as they flex (laughs) and then they punch each other and grin and punch each other and grin. Yes. And everybody punches each other and grins. (laughs) Um, yeah, I like that part a lot actually. (laughs) Um, so like from the get go in this movie, it does one of my favorite things that Miyazaki does. In that it's this very working class environment. Ah, very yes. like and 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 very much like a, a unity kind of thing within the working class environment. Like we take care of our own kind of thing. Yeah. Um because we got the miners at the beginning. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about the miners and then they get into town and then the townsfolk come out to try to help us. Yes help the the kids get away and yeah that's so weird like they're they're all just so helpful so kind they're all like oh hey new girl are you helping out yeah you got a new friend come on 
I'm going to freaking ride this train and half of it's going to blow up while I'm getting away yeah. from these pirates, but we're going to help you get away. By the way, the government's here, but I'm going to shoot steam in their face <laughs> even though they're the, the government. <laughs> um, so you can get away. Yes. This is probably a felony, but oh well. <laughs> like that's it's. I like that though about it. It's like this fun – like, I, and, and it's portrayed in a way that I think – Like I think it does kind of have a, a I like this this just like solidarity tone to it like we like we look after each other kind of thing yeah like there's a certain I think there's a certain clear respect he gives to he gives to people in those kinds of environments and gives to people who work those kinds of jobs and are in those kinds of communities. Um, I also think it's interesting the level of detail that maybe went into this. Mm. Uh, like I feel like the way things are working. They're fantastical, but it also it looks like someone who make went out of their way to learn what a coal mine looks like, yep. or I guess an iron mine, or I forget what they're looking for. I don't recall, but yeah, I know what you're talking about. And it, it things work like a mine would work. Things look like a mining town. Um, the characters look like your token 1920s miner characters. Yeah. But with that kind of detail, that seems like it's more than just a, a recycled caricature. Like people's hats are different. It's like it's at the level where people's hats and oh. clothes look distinct from each other, yes. even in crowds. Um, like I like all of that. I like that kind of respect he gives to it. And then I think also another part of this, part of what I like that's kind of on display here and later on is a level of sympathy for virtually everyone yes. in – in in his movies there might be some exceptions i think especially in this case in the castle of the skies case that the one the the bad guy in glasses yeah. is just a a, a token <laughs> villain in glasses kind of thing yes but outside of that i think there's a very real attempt to try to give everyone some kind of character beyond a caricature or some kind of some kind of respect in a way totally and I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. That stood out to me primarily with the pirate lady, because pirate lady is like the first person we're exposed to in the beginning. Who's the bad person who kicks off the mm -hmm. whole movie where she's the one who breaks into the plane and causes little girl to fall all the way down to little boy and start their adventure. And she's chasing after little girl. And so it's the seed is planted that she's supposed to be the bad person. But then. Mm -hmm. We get to the point like kind of halfway through the movie, everything shifts because now the government are the bad people. The pirates also hate the government. So enemy of my enemy is our friend. We're going to go hang out with the crazy pirate lady and all of her weird friends. And everyone's going to creep on the little girl and we're going to have a great yeah, time. Yeah, they are. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a. Yeah. Yeah, that's a thing. Um, <laughs> but like even before then, though, it's it's more than just. I feel like he goes out of his way to make them more than just, you know, like enemy of my enemy kind of thing. Like there's a, like they're like, he makes them to be these very likable characters in a way, especially the grandma. Yes. Who, uh, like there's that little sequence where she's listening to them talk in the, mm -hmm. up in the, uh, the crow's nest. Yes. And she's just making these faces like, 
like what did you say and then and then afterwards it's just more like oh yeah yeah like it feels sympathetic in a way like you get the totally. impression that she's a genuinely good person that her pirates are genuinely good people even though they're pirates yes um and i i just i really like all of that i i i feel like at the end of the day maybe a core theme of a lot of these movies are that most people are good yeah at least that's the impression I've gotten, and it's kind of a nice feeling to come away from a movie with. Yeah, I think especially. That, go ahead. No, 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 no. I don't want to cut you off. No, there. I was just going to say I think that also translates to the main characters. I one part that stood out to me is they they agree with pirate people. Our little boy and little girl main characters agree with mm-hmm. pirate people to go off with them, and they go on the ship, and it's like, okay, well, if you guys are going to go with us. You're going to have to do some chores. So boy goes to mechanic man and main girl goes to clean dishes and cook. And I feel like in any other mainstream movie nowadays, it would be like, oh, I have to do chores. Why do I have to do this? But when they do it, they're like, yes, I will fulfill this role. I feel like I have purpose. You have given me this thing to do, and I will proudly fulfill that role that you have given me. And that's that really stood out to me for some reason. And it made me like these characters a lot more for mm-hmm. that's because I'm used to condition modern movies where everyone complains, I guess. But I still really like yeah. that. And that's that's and that's a moment that stood out to me, too, um, in particular, when the boy is assigned to like engineering yes. and he's assigned to work with the Eggman looking dude. The, yeah, the guy it looks like Robotnik. He does. <laughs> and he uh, he gets in there but instead of this like I feel like in a in a lot of movies it'd be this very complaint like complaining is a good way to put it. Yeah. There'd be some riffing, there'd be some kind of like what do you mean you don't know how to fix this engine or yes. whatever. And he just kind of does it, asks for help when he needs to and it, it like it feels more like real rather than yeah. in the way like it feels like these are what a normal person in that situation might react to what's being asked of them Mm -hmm. as opposed to like something that could be played off for laughs or played off for like, like, uh, some kind of like, like you don't have the, the Eggman looking guy smacking him with a wrench or anything (laughs) like that saying like, what do you mean? You can't do this. You stupid person or whatever. It's just more like a natural, this is how you do it kind of thing. And I really, liked that um same with the girl character it's just kind of unfortunate that that became also everyone on the ship (laughs) swooning after her because she's like mama (laughs) yes she put on mama's clothes (laughs) uh how'd you feel about the actual like core conceit of the plot though core conceit oh boy that i guess that was the part that I guess it was fine. It was like kind of sort of pseudo generic where we've got lady, our main girl um, has special thing and she's a special person and she's got, Mm -hmm. you know, she's the chosen one and she has the special stone and everyone wants a special stone that special lady has. Uh, And she's got the special bloodline because she's a princess and then everyone wants that. But I think the journey that she was taking along the way is what had me, what was interesting. I liked being exposed to all these characters. I liked spending time with the pirates. I liked the stuff they were doing in the airship. I liked going to this weird floating island in the sky that's very difficult to get to. I liked the ships. I liked the housefly, like, fighter things that the pirates drive. Mm -hmm. 
once it got towards the end, I didn't like how hastily it seemed like things were kind of thrown together to give us like a big showdown with a big bad guy with big bad government glasses man. Because all of a sudden he's like, I have your same bloodline and now I have the stone and I can be God and do whatever I want. And I'm going to blow up all these people. I felt like that was very quickly thrown together, especially compared to the rest of the movie. But I enjoyed the journey that it ultimately took me, if that makes sense. No, that makes sense. I mean, I can I kind of came away with the same feelings. I, I. If there was a weak link in this movie to me, it was the villains, yeah. the government. Because they're just there doing shady government stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like that's their, 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 your token villain. And yeah. then to make it worse, he's not only just your token government villain archetype, he's your token, like, like he's, he's at the level of like a comic book villain. There's like, yeah. I don't feel like there's a whole lot going on there yeah. that makes him interesting in any way, that makes him. Mm-hmm. Like that makes this central conflict interesting anyway. Like you know exactly how you want this to go. You know exactly how it's going to go. Yes, absolutely. The moment he I, starts blowing stuff up. Yes, there's a part where they have the government has one of these futuristic robots from Floating Island, and then futuristic robot comes alive and then just starts blowing everyone up. And then evil guy with glasses is like, "Oh my gosh, it's alive!" And he's just staring at all these people dying with a smile on his face. That was probably. A little much, big bad guy. A little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just, I, yeah, yeah. I like the robot, though. I think it's a cool yes. robot design. Um, yeah, really long like arms, the, which is interesting. Yeah. That stood out to me and for the, some reason. Yeah, like it's just, it It, it kind of takes that, that conical head that uh, the giant had in Nausicaa. Ah. To, yeah. which looks kind of cool it has rockets on its chest rather than its back so it can yes. move like a bat when it oh, flies that's right yes like it looks good it did functions in a way that the make the looks make sense um yes yeah and then you get the one on the when they actually get to the island um well for starters even before mm-hmm. that when he's blowing up the base I think they he does that thing Miyazaki does that thing again or his animators do his the stat, like the, the the that does that thing where the robot is like this terrifying monster he can clearly ice this entire mm-hmm. castle by himself yeah. but they kind of give him a little bit of sympathy at the end mm-hmm. like the way he reaches out like he's the way he sets down our uh main character and it, it, you get the impression it's a little more tender than it should be. And at that very moment is when the gunship shoots the shell right through him, mm-hmm. which looks like how that would look yeah. and is convincing in that way. And it looked good like that. But like you get that sense where there's this there's this monster. But there, but because of the way just because of the way it moved for like a five second sequence, yeah. there's a bit of sympathy for it. Yes. And then they capitalize on that when you go to when you actually get to Laputa and you get the other robot that's still alive Mm -hmm. and it's up there and it's just like taking care of birds. Yes. Yes. That is something that I can't think of something similar. I don't know. Like in modern day, like if you want to instill humanity in a robot or. Yeah, if you want to instill humanity in a robot, I I feel like this is in every piece of media now where with, you know, cyberpunky robot, whatever's like 
if you got a robot, is it really human? Is it not human? Is it does it have human rights? Does it not have human rights? Does it feel pain? Probably. Does that mean it's human? Hmm, I don't know. Did God make it? Does that actually matter? I don't know. But this is Okay, David Cage. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But this is this shows robot and nature coexisting happily together. And that is something that's just like even for whatever this movie was made must have been novel and it's still extremely novel now as far as I'm aware because like usually the robot and the nature are polar opposites does not compute but we get to Laputa the flying island in the sky and we've got this robot just chilling and hanging out with a bunch of these little fox squirrel looking things and they love them (laughs) and you know they're all happy and then the bad thing that happens is the government coming in and trying to blow everything up Mm -hmm. yeah and I mean like I think there is an analog. I think the close. Uh, I don't. I want to say it's the closest. It's like uh, I, I'm pretty sure Overwatch and in, in Overwatch Bastion takes this directly Ooh, from yes. The the whole butter on the shoulder thing is directly yes. this. Um, but but yeah, and I think this is the way. Like yeah, yeah. Pretty much every. I, I'm in agreement with what you said there, and it's. And I really, really liked it. And that's why I think the thing that kind of lasts from this movie, like the thing that people kind of look back to and point to typically is the the robot. Uh, At least that's, the, that's okay. what I've seen. Yes. I might be way off base there, but I feel like what people kind of get from this is it's that second robot in the, on the island, on the mm-hmm. on Laputa, who's mm-hmm. caring for the birds. And that's kind of his only yeah. thing. Fascinating. But uh, so at the end of the day, Laputa, Castle in the Sky, good movie. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I liked it. Another thing I like is how the clouds work. It's so freaking awesome. Like the mm-hmm. planes like tear through them and they like rip apart like water or something. Like, yeah. That looks awesome. He made the, yeah, he made the flying sequence in this Ooh. very much like a naval battle. Ah, Like a yes. pirate battle in some way yes. with just a little bit of like that that – that that you know we're in we're in the sky so we can do this kind of stuff yes but like he's like the, it feels like the visual dna that we're taking out of this is maybe you know like a submarine movie mm-hmm. or we're taking like a, a pirate movie out of this yeah. especially when they're at the when they're at the edge there and there's the huge storm yes. and the boats fo- the the dreadnoughts following them yes and you get the kind of tension you would get out of like a pirate battle at sea or something totally Yes. And it's it, it looks and, – and it functions that way. Like it, it's – the way the clouds are being used makes it seem more like a, an ocean current. Wow. And yeah. Very astute observation, Michael. I did not put those two and two together on that one. That's really cool. Hmm. Hmm. So I guess anything else we want to say about Castle in the Sky? No, I'm good. I'm good with moving on, Michael. Okay. All right. I thought it was good. Castle and in I the think Sky, thumbs get... up for me. Now, the next one is the one I'm really – one of the ones I'm very curious about. Oh, boy. Yes. Um, Grave of the Fireflies. Grave of the Fireflies. It is honestly probably one of my least favorite Ghibli movies. But Really? I'd like to hear what you think of it. I liked Grave of the Fireflies a lot, a lot, a lot. I really, really like oh. fireflies. You okay. tell me, Michael. This is interesting. This is interesting. 
Mm-hmm. Give me give me the the Michael, the Michael summary, the the letterboxed Michael reviews of the fireflies. Uh I don't know how to do a fake letterboxed review. Something something. Oh, gosh dang it. Firefly 1 and Seta walked so Brokeback Mountain could run. Um <laughs> So actually I so my issue with this movie is it feels like it exists. I don't want to say maybe for a message because I think the, actually the director has come out and said that it's not explicitly an anti-war movie, which I think is insane. But Interesting. The idea – to me it feels in a way – I don't want to say the cruelty is the point because I don't think that's the case. Yeah. But it feels as though we're pulling out – not – like like – I feel like killing kids is one of the 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 lowest bars yeah. you can hit for like like obvious bad things to happen mm-hmm. and obvious things that are gonna bring some kind of emotion yeah and like if I want my cast to feel upset at the end of this movie, this is what I'm going to do yeah um and that's always felt a little cheap to me in a way gotcha. yes. And it's definitely the case in this movie, even though I think there's some things it does very, very well. I think the relationship it shows between uh, the the two mm-hmm. the two kids is very, very strong. The way it kind of portrays the post war the post war world is very, very strong. I just didn't care for the the central conceit here, where we're just going to torture two children for an emotional response. Yeah, interesting. Got it. Got it. Um, which is saying when the other, and I mean, this is one of the ones I've seen the most. I've seen this probably about three times. Oh, times wow. Now. Jeez. But is this, is this like the non Miyazaki Ghibli movie that a lot of people frequently I think watch? So. Yeah. It's like the one. I think so. I think this is, yeah, I think this is the non Miyazaki. If there's, if you watch a non Miyazaki Ghibli movie, I think it's usually Grave of the Fireflies. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So that's kind of, this is, that's just kind of my beef with it. Um, yes curious you really really liked it and i'd love to hear why you actually why why you really really liked it yeah i it kind of grew on me the longer i watched it um Mm. i kind of had to put the opening out of my brain because i didn't quite understand like we start out with a boy and he's detached and talking about how he's dead but then mm-hmm. we actually go into the movie and I'm like, OK, I'll just I'll just forget that happened and I'll watch the movie now. And thankfully, I, I, I think I was able to successfully put that beginning framing device out of my mind. Until I got to the end and could then reflect on that opening part. Which so it took a little bit for me to get into it. And then like the bombs that are dropped, they're very strange. They're like tubes that shoot out fire. Mm-hmm. Is that is that? Yes. yes. So these are incendiary bombs. Interesting. So okay. During World War II, I, a lot of people kind of talk – when you talk about, oh, the, the, the human rights violation bombing kind of thing, yeah. it's usually centered on uh, Hiroshima and then definitely Nagasaki, yep. the, the nuclear bombings. But throughout the course of the war and especially in, during the end, especially when we had bases that could reach Japan, there was this very like concerted firebombing effort. Uh, against a lot of cities, uh, Tokyo, in this case, Kobe, um, 
And that's what that was. It basically, you have the bomb drop down, shoots out canisters, and those ignite. And because a lot of Japanese cities were made from wood, hey. they were very easily burned. Yikes. So that's that's what that was. Man, that's rough. And in a lot of ways, people – like there's a lot that could be said about you know, ethics. Yeah. What was the morality. practical purpose of this? Just to demoralize everyone? Yeah, that's that's the idea. Yeah, you want to – we're going to keep bombing you until you surrender. We want to make this as costly for you as possible. Yeesh. And we want the people to turn against you. It's weird, I think, in actual like – I think there have been attempts to try to study that effect. You know, does this have an, does this actually have a, an effect? And and what people have found from looking in, at World War II in particular is no. Interesting. But, okay. Um, yeah. So that's what that was. Um, that's kind of how those bombs worked. So those worked the way they were supposed to. Yeah. Interesting. And yeah. So you were you got into it though. Yes. What what really kept you. I, I really appreciated it. it seemed to handle things in a more mature manner than I don't know the typical war movie that I would see nowadays or I, I'm not exactly well versed in the language of film, but I have watched, you know, your your Dunkirk's, your um your War of the Worlds, your um your independence days. So when usually when there's mass genocide, it's loud noises and like uh loud instrumental music and then slow motion and we sit there and we look at it and we stare at it and we watch it and that's not what we do in grave of the fireflies we follow this boy and this girl who are like crazy competent and strong in this awful situation where i really found myself getting wrapped up in them and feeling motivated by them to try and feel like try and be there with them to help them get through this situation. Cause it feels like in the beginning, these, this, this bombing is kind of like lights a fuse and the fuse is just burning down. And I hope that there isn't a bomb at the end of this fuse. And I just want it to, I just want to get through to the end of it because their mom dies and we don't sit there when their mom dies. We don't linger on it. We just move on. And he's like, okay, I'm going to pretend she's still alive for the sake of my little sister. And we're going to keep moving on. And even when we get to the point of reckoning where the little girl finds out that their mom died, it's not like long crying. It's not like, why didn't you tell me? It's not liar revealed. It's not all of those stereotypes that I'm used to seeing in all these movies. It's mom's dead. And then the boy's the one who starts crying because he's the one who's just not reckoning with it. And, I thought that was just like so phenomenally well done, really, really well done. And that's not what I see, you know, typically in movies. I was expecting the lie revealed. I was expecting all of these cliches that I wasn't getting. And then I found myself really invested in these characters. And that's what made me really, really emotional, surprisingly so at the end of the movie, because mm -hmm. I've heard I'm pretty sure I've heard before, like Grave of the Fireflies, one of the saddest movies ever. Don't watch. You're going to cry. Yeah. You know, I've. I've been in YouTube comment sections for the end of Yakuza 6 and they're like, OMG, if you didn't cry during this, you're not a human being. And I didn't cry during the end of it. You know, I've consumed so much media where I feel it's I don't know. I have a difficult time investing myself emotionally, I guess, because I just like I said, the big sweeping orchestral score in slow motion while a bunch of people are dying. That doesn't get into my brain that a bunch of people mm -hmm 
a bunch of potential human beings are actually dying. Whereas if you've got this little girl who is going through all of this crap, but is very strong, but she's also this believable little girl, like she'll just cry in the middle of the night for no reason because she's a human being and she's a little girl and that's what little girls do and she wants her candy. And if you end up taking that, if you end up killing that, that's that was really tough for me. Like I, I found myself going through the cycle, the, like the stages of grief almost where I was like, ah, oh, man, what the heck? Like, why didn't you feed her? You had the money. Why didn't you feed her? I'm trying to bargain with the movie. And then I, I, I could just get sad. And then this, I, this, this is probably the first movie in a long time. I think in the past maybe decade that I've actually actively shed tears, Michael. It happened. I'm kind of jealous of that power. I do that every movie. Um, <laughs> okay. I envy and that's, that. I think, okay, because that's, I mean, if there's a strength to this movie, I think it's kind of what you're describing in that we're not, like, we're going out of our way to try to drag out what a human cost to this is, what a human cost to war is. Yeah. And we're making, they're making a point of you, you know spending time with them watching them just be kids yeah. and try to act as kid as adults in this world where they're still just kids mm-hmm. and where things are genuinely hard yeah um i think the thing it does well is it makes their they act like how kids would act yeah and they do i think a very strong job at trying to build a relationship between these two kids too so that when you get to the inevitable, you know, these, when you get to the inevitable, the inevitable ending where these kids die, it's, it is kind of, it is affecting. And I think in that way, it does pull a card that a lot of movies don't with its generic, um, with, with the more generic, what is like, like mass deaths sequences, uh, the blowing up of a city or something, mm-hmm. or like, it, it's not comically violent in any way. It's not. It's a very quiet ending. Yeah. It absolutely is. Yeah. There's one scene that's, uh, I think, a little more prototypical of stuff we see in movies nowadays, where um, uh, Seita, I think, is our main boy, and Setsuko is our main girl, where Setsuko is starting to get sick, and so Seita takes her in to the doctor, and then... He's like, oh, she's got malnutrition. She just needs food next. And I, I did. It's it's something that I think is more common in film nowadays. But I still really liked it here because of where it cut, where it ended that scene, because uh, they're struggling to get food. And then uh, the doctor says she just needs food. And then Seda says, well, how the heck do I get food? And then we cut, we get out of that extremely uncomfortable situation and we just sit with it. We just sit with the fact that these people are starving to death. Mm -hmm. I appreciated that. Mm. Okay. What if I told you that the director has gone on record and said that this is explicitly not an anti-war movie? That would be very interesting, Michael. That would be very interesting. I wouldn't know how to interpret this movie, I suppose. And I don't think a lot of people would. I think I was looking at the IMDb uh, user reviews or whatever, and a lot of them were like, you know, 
the most fantastic anti-war film I have ever seen in my life sh- displays the loss of war in the one of the most touching ways possible. But you're yeah. telling me that that was not the intention, supposedly. So the director, uh, Takahata, has come out or did come out soon after and said the grave of the fireflies. And I quote, and I wrote this down while I was looking this up. It is not at all an anti-war anime. And. Oh, what did I write? I can't read my writing. The cha. Yeah. And absolutely has no such message. Fascinating. It contains absolutely no such message. Weird. So. That's and that's what he's said, but it's crazy because I think people have taken this film regardless and seen it as an anti-war message because we're talking about, you know, the this this human suffering yep. rather than what people would typically look at, like oh, it's it's you don't really get any heroics here, you don't get any kind of, yeah. um, what am I trying to say? Yeah, you don't get any kind of big rallying. Mm-hmm. There's no, I don't think there's ever really an attempt at nationalism or anything kind of buried within here it's just two kids trying to survive and then failing Mm -hmm. which i have a hard time with as a conceit yeah just as like a i it just it it irks me in a way it feels kind of like a a, a, not a low-hanging fruit but like a oh if i want yeah yeah I, i think i've said it already though so but there are some things I think this movie does well, and it's really cool to hear that you really, really liked it. Yeah. I was caught off guard by it, Michael. I wasn't anticipating feeling that much at the end of this movie film. Christian wasn't ready for the feels. I wasn't. Feels so bad, man. Anime movie. Speaking of anime movies, <laughs> you ready to move on? Sure. Okay. So now I think the next one on the list is we're in like... So these are kind of this is the golden. I picked Grave of the Fireflies. I picked well. I wanted to pick Grave of the Fireflies because I wanted to make sure that we had at least one other Ghibli director oh, here. Yeah. It's not just Miyazaki's show. This is Takahata, and he we did another Takahata movie towards the end too. Um, we're going back to Miyazaki now, and it feels I, I'm. So the next movie during all this time, you know, there's going to be stuff like Totoro comes out, which actually Totoro was screened alongside Grave of the Fireflies, which I thought was an insane, <laughs> that is bonkers, insane <laughs> fact. Um, Weird. You get some other ones in there. I think I don't know. Ex- I forget exactly when Hell's Moving Castle comes out, but it's probably around this time. Uh, Jeez, they were cranking them out, huh? Yeah, and then you get the other directors start popping stuff out here. Takahata does Pompoko around here. I think Porco Rosso's around this time. Uh, yeah, but then the next, the, the kind of one of the big touchstone movies then is uh, the t- is Princess Mononoke. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of like, oh, if it wasn't Spirited Away, it might be Mononoke kind of thing. Interesting. It's kind of where this sits. Yes. Um, this one's probably my favorite. Whoa. I'm curious to hear what you think, though. Yes. What do you think? I liked it. Okay. I enjoyed it. Okay. I wasn't in love with it. I didn't hate it, but I enjoyed it. Okay. I think 
for me at some point or another i'd read like a review or not a review necessarily but a uh uh just kind of like a, a retrospective that had compared this movie to star wars oh interesting and for some reason at that moment like my brain yes. part started firing and yes. then shaking hands with each other like yes yes oh, mm-hmm, indeed yes yes yes, mm-hmm, yes and that's kind of when it settled into this spot where like i i love this mm. it's got that kind of adventure to it that kind of grand journey to it that uh that that blend of high fantasy and more classical grounded happenings ah, um, interesting it's got characters that I think are really interesting. Uh, like, I think a lot of ink has been spent on writing about Lady Eboshi, but I think Lady Eboshi is really Lady Eboshi and Iron Town. I think are really, really strong. Yeah. Just as like a narrative, like as characters, as inhabitants in this this world they've created. Yes. Um, and like all of this kind of clicks with me so that some of the other stuff that I'm maybe not as big of a fan of. Okay. Like, honestly, I, I don't know how much I cared for the more in your face symbolism happening with the deer, mm-hmm. with the deer God and the head of the deer God towards the end. But a lot of like the stuff leading up to that, I, I absolutely loved a lot of the, like the way the different animal gods interacted with each other and, kind of their politics here i thought was really cool alongside this this civil war essentially that japan i guess sounds like it's having at the time now that the emperor is no longer influential or the shogunate i forget which one it was so you've got these like you've got these different lords vying for power and that's where iboshi kind of steps in to try to make her own claim on and all of this that's why there's fighting between the samurai and her folks in iron town and like i love that setting i love those conflicts and the way they kind of worked and the way the characters are portrayed and interacting with those conflicts yes yeah that's fascinating um, because that's like the the fight the what you're describing like the samurai on samurai sword on sword fights we just kind of like see his background dressing we see as yeah. like him our main character just flying through an environment and there's people fighting and he's just like i have my own thing i'm getting away from this yeah but that's – and I I think I like that more for it too. We're not lingering too much yeah. on that kind of stuff. I feel like if there was like – you know, if we had to sit down and say, okay, Hollywood needs to make this a movie, we're going to linger a little more on yeah. the action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to linger a little more on these battle scenes. But instead we're just kind of seeing them as, you know, like distant observers, as something that happens the way maybe you'd look at – like uh, the, maybe the way it'd be recorded in a history special or something. You're not really yeah. like you're not going deep into this. You're not you're not struggling with trying to na- remember the names of different lords, why they're fighting each other. You're not getting these close up shots that are really gratuitous of of like him slaughtering an entire squad of samurai or whatever. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's just very cursory, and it's just to kind of set the stage so you can move on to what's maybe more important, which is, you know, how are the the people we're meant to follow kind of interacting with the world? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. 
That's fascinating. The little, the little, uh, the little tree spirits are adorable. Yes, I agree. Your little head shaky. Yeah, we got little uh, little chubby butts. Thumbs up for me on yeah, the little chubby butts. Yeah, they do have little chubby butts. Yeah, chubby butts. <laughs> That's cute. That's cute. They're cute. They're like so adorable, and they do the little shaky head. They do. And they're really tiny, and I don't know. They do. Um, I don't know. The uh, I loved the the way the animal kingdoms politics kind of worked outside of maybe the deer ah, stuff. Yes, yes. Cause you got the wolves and the boars. Those are pretty big. Like yeah, where they're fighting with each. Factions. Yeah, and the, the apes are there too. And yes, that's right. Like I like that a lot, and then like you get these comments about oh, finally Otokoro or whatever the name of the Okoto, I think was the name of the boar. He's here. Finally, someone with some sense, kind of yes. thing. And I like how there's that. That's kind of like how people talk to each totally. other. <laughs> um, I really, really liked all of that stuff. Uh, I think you get a bit of that same, you know, that fixation on maybe the working class or lower class folks as well with Iron Town ah. because it's populated by women that were rescued from like from like the sex trade and stuff. Oh, really? Okay, that's that's one of the comments she uh, Iboshi says. Yes. Is like a lot of these women came from that were rescued from the sex trade. There's a home for the lepers there as well, yes. who are the gunsmiths, and they're treated as people. And like I think we're in an environment where you know where where Miyazaki is trying to trying to empathize with most of his cast, trying to empathize with everyone, give everyone kind of a bit of of give them their nuance and their due in this. Yeah. Outside of like the the samurai who are just kind of slaughtered when they show up to be the mm-hmm. the 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 folks who get their heads popped off with an arrow or whatever. Yes, <laughs> he's got plot calls for. <laughs> he's got freaking evil arm, and so whenever he he shoots a bow and arrow, the dude's freaking heads come off when he shoots yeah. them. Michael, that's freaking. He shoots insane. the one guy's. He shoots the guy's sword, yes. and it rips both his arms <laughs> off. Like, oh my god. And it feels like it could have been so easy to take that further and just make this movie, yeah. Like that—that—that's like what the the conceit for a Sekiro or yes. like a, a, a kind of like a ninja mm-hmm. assassin bloodbath mm-hmm. kind of thing. But instead, we're not really dwelling on that much. Just when we need the plot to show there's some kind of civil violence going on, and yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting, Michael, that you mentioned that um, these women in this town came from the sex trade because. I noticed that there was like this gender bias going on with the women, especially where they they seem to live separately and work separately of the men. And they the I forgot her name, like the the princess lady, not the princess, the lady who runs the town, musket lady. Mm-hmm. Iboshi. Iboshi yeah. Yes, Lady Iboshi. They're very protective of her. And like when she's about to go off and do something, they're like, don't let don't depend on the men. We're the ones who can yeah. take care of it. Trust us. And like her male bodyguard is like, don't worry, I'll take care of her. And they're like, uh, 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 you're a man. I don't think we trust you. And that explains that explains that in a very interesting way. And it delves into that a little deeper in a way that I did not pick up on, Michael. Yeah. It's also, I think, kind of funny because if we're talking like like the way genders are presented in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the way the men are all, for the most part, dits. <laughs> yes. And, like, clearly, I, I think that's kind of a fun, I don't want to say a twist, but I liked it a lot. Yeah. Like, it was it was, it was was cool having that knife kind of stuck in and skewered a bit. And, mm-hmm. 
It's like, like, look at these like doofuses. He goes off and breaks his arm and yes. has the gall to come back here. And uh, I, I thought that was it, it made for, I think, fun setups that punched up rather than down in a way. Ah, and I like that. Yeah. 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 Because um, I think one of the things that like a thread through a lot of this and it's something that's often commented on with with Miyazaki movies, especially is the way that women are presented. And the way that they kind of have a central role in the plot, the way that they're yes. really some of the most developed characters and they're very – like they have agency in these in these movies, which isn't something you can really say, especially about Hollywood as a whole and, and filmmaking mm-hmm. as a whole, especially in anime in a lot of ways and in a lot of uh, cartoons in general in a lot of ways. Wow. Um, and this kind of rises as a counter narrative to that where you have characters like Lady Eboshi, like Princess Mononoke. Mm-hmm. Um or going as far back as like Nausicaa, where they're they have the the agency in the plot and really things are happening because the women have taken charge in the story and they're all competent characters. They're all able to kind of hold their own in these worlds and in ways even, you know, be the commanding force in the world. I think like the you have with with Mononoke, especially uh Lady Eboshi being like the central like one of the central power players, if not the central power player. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's especially interesting. This movie's called Princess Mononoke, but it's not it's not framed around Mononoke, which I was really taken off guard by, where we start mm-hmm. with this guy and there's this crazy boar that has a bunch of worms on it, which looks really cool. And yeah. it infects his arm and he's got to figure out how to fix his infected arm. So he goes off to where... He hears that it might be able to get healed, and then that's where we get to the Eboshi Mononoke dichotomy, which is what it seems like mm-hmm. is like the epicenter of this narrative, and that's where that juicy, delicious stuff is at. That yeah. juicy, delicious center at this framing device where this guy's got trying to fix his cursed arm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me in that it doesn't feel like there's a central character. Ah, in yeah. In this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I feel like a lot of this, we're pulling uh God, what's the, there's there's a good example of this, and I can't think of it. But I feel like we're in a situation where the main character, Ashitaka, he really exists just for a, just to be a vehicle for us to see this, mm-hmm. this plot mm-hmm. kind of happen. Even when he has a direct hand in everything that's happening, it feels like... Miyazaki was more interested in telling us what's going on with Eboshi and Mononoke. Yeah. And what's going on with this world. And Ashitaka is just there to kind of be a part of it. Yeah. Um, which I also really liked. Yeah. So. He's strapped in for the roller coaster ride just like us. And a roller coaster ride it was. <laughs> I think. There's some stuff that looks really cool in this movie. I don't know. There's some stuff where I'm just like, I like how that looks. I like how his elk steed looks. I yeah. like how he looks with his little mask uh, bandana thing pulled up over his face while he's shooting arrows at dudes. I think that looks cool. And also, like, the the ending of this movie, when they decapitate the deer god, and then it's just, like, devolves into chaos. We've got forest spirits or blobs raining down from the sky and like everything's just popping off everyone's running everywhere the dudes are trying to get away with the deer head while this 
giant mass is rising from the forest and trying to get it back and there's gunk everywhere just that looks freaking awesome yeah that's a way the to end a movie head, the Michael. severed wolf head jumps up and grabs the lady's arm yes yes and there's um, a, there's a there's a piece of dialogue earlier on right where they're yeah. like a wolf head something's never dead or something We'll still like bite. a wolf's a, a wolf's head can still bite, yeah. Yes. And I never noticed it before watching it for this. Really interesting. That, that was yes. a lot. That that they they play that they telegraph that so far in advance. They do. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. There's a lot of that going on. I loved the way Iron Town looked in general. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Just like this, this these bellows shooting up soot and stuff, mm-hmm. and everything's all not industrial, but kind of industrial yeah. and. There were some. There was a lot of scenes where, like, where you have like the, the few moments of combat you do get. I think it looks very good. Yeah. Um. Like, there's a shot where when Ashitaka is trying to get trying to head west, and he first comes across, across the village being attacked by uh, being attacked by samurai. Mm-hmm. You get this close up of him with the arrow. That's and funny. while the while things are moving with him, so it's very dynamic, and he's moving it in a very precise way. But you also get that kind of like that rumbling from yes. the, his his curse underneath. Yeah, and that looked like that's an image that stands out in my mind. Um, there's the scene where the wolves attack the oxen, mm-hmm. and it's just kind of rainy and yeah. grumpy, and it looks kind of like something you could rip out of like a an old war movie or something, and the fighting's happening the way you'd think the fighting would be happening and it just it like you get that kind of distance from it though or the the fight where there's like this brief skirmish with samurai when eboshi meets up with the hunter and you get like just kind of like the way like it just looks good i think in an action sense like a lot of the action even though it's not the centerpiece of this movie it looks really good yeah and the some of the choreography with the fighting and stuff, mm-hmm. like when Mononoke attacks the town, Ooh, and yes. she's trying to set up that fight with Eboshi, and then they're going at it one on one. That like it looked like a sharp fight. It looked well choreographed. Visually, it was very good as yes. far as you know the way swords are being dinked against each other. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another thing that I think just looks cool is uh, Mononoke's. She's got like this mask and it's got like this fur out around the side of it. I think that looks freaking awesome. It, it reminded me for some reason, it reminded me of uh, Avatar The Last Airbender with uh, <coughs> uh, Suko, I think his name is. And he wears he's the blue guy. He wears the blue mask or whatever and does the things. If I remember yeah. right from 20 yep. years ago, not 20 years yep. ago, 15 yeah, years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. It reminded me of that, but I think this looks freaking awesome. There's one scene in particular where she puts like the she puts the mask down, but she kind of like brushes away some of the hair that's mm. along the side of the mask i'm like oh my gosh like that's something a human would do but you you just animated that for no practical purpose other than that you know that's what a human would do that's that looks freaking awesome yeah which i think is like a strength that ghibli's kind of always had yeah with it with its animation and stuff like that is that it makes people do those little things that look like things people would do mm-hmm. like that's a that's such a good like that's a really good example but it just it feels like people are doing normal people things and doing what people do in these places and like they're little details you wouldn't think about 
were you a charlatan like me trying to sit down and write this stuff? But it's things that, you know, if you've been sitting down and watching how people interact, yeah. that's, that's, you can capture that. And that's what they try to capture. Bless these really people, like Michael. It. How do they think of these things? I don't know. I was going to say a big budget, but no, that's not how they think of it. Um, but yeah. So Mononoke, it sounds like you liked it. I liked it. Yes. Okay. You good to move on then? Yeah, let's do it. So these are the last, or supposed to be the last three movies. Triumvirate, the trifecta? The Yeah, the Ghibli made. Ah, gotcha. Oh, interesting. So these, these last three that we watched were supposed to be the big last three that Ghibli made as a studio. No, maybe not so much Ghibli made as a studio, but these were the, like this was, like Kaguya was... Uh, Takahata's farewell. Oh. Uh, the wind rise. Oh, the wind rises was supposed to be Miyazaki's farewell. Got it. And then Marnie just happened to be the last movie they made before they went on hiatus. Got it. Um, so, in a lot of ways, this was going to be kind of like the swan song. Yeah. Particularly the wind rises, and but also Kaguya, uh, the tale of Princess Kaguya. And I'm curious as to kind of how you felt about some of these movies. Yeah. Let's well, let's start with Kaguya because I think it comes first in it comes first chronologically here. Gotcha. So it's very much it's very different from a lot of these other movies, just visually and everything like that. Yeah, and I'm it's also very much like a the most conventional fairy tale. Yes. like of these movies so i'm wondering what how you kind of thought about it i'm wondering whether or not when we talked we were talking about how this was like a roller coaster for you mm -hmm. i was wondering it, it means there's a drop somewhere in this area and i'm wondering where it is <laughs> was it kaguya or was it not kaguya kaguya i liked i did quite okay. enjoy kaguya okay i i did too but yeah it's it's like yeah, you it's, mentioned it's, it's very different it's very different from any of these other movies and the the fairy tale e stuff I think kind of accounted for both the stuff I really liked, but then some of the stuff got a little out there in a way that my normie white North American brain had a little bit of a hard time wrapping itself around. But I can definitely appreciate how they just freaking went for something there in mm -hmm. this movie that's kind of bonkers. And I'm yeah. glad I watched it. Okay, okay. So you said it's kind of bonkers, and I want to know where you think the bonk comes in. The <laughs> bonk? Show uh, me the bonk. Tell me the bonk. <laughs> well, it's it starts out a little a little strange. We we have narration, thankfully, that makes it seem a little more normal than it probably actually is, where we got uh, Bamboo Harvester Man out in yeah. the woods, and then he chops down a bamboo stalk, and then, boom, there's a little girl. And then the little girl is growing really fast, and then she stops growing really fast because we, we have stuff happening now. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think where the weirdness, the, where the weirdness factor started, and as soon as we started bringing in the moon, and there's people on the moon, and then they start coming down to get Princess Kaguya back. Or I'm sorry, yes, to get Kaguya yeah. back. That's the stuff where I had to take a little bit of a leap there. I'm not sure I successfully made that leap. I think mm -hmm. I face planted a little bit while trying to do so. But I would like to get to the point, Michael in my brain where I can happily <laughs> embrace the craziness that's going on at the end of this movie. Yeah. Well, okay. So this is based off an actual fairy tale. 
Interesting. So the, the the tale of the bamboo cutter. It's a it's a real uh, Japanese folk tale. Oh wow! Um, and it, so it kind of had to end like that. Interesting. Uh, okay. Yeah, so I guess maybe that's that's probably where a lot of the the weirder moments are going to be coming from. Yes. Um, my understanding is that this gives it a different kind of light, though. It sounds like this gives a lot more character to Gaguya herself. Oh, okay. I may be way off base on that. So does the fairy tale focus more on the parents, or what's the deal? I, that you see, I've never actually read the original fairy tale, but I know it just because it's kind of it's it's tapped a lot for, it, like, in pop culture, it's tapped okay. a lot in a lot of like yeah anime, and it I think it's referenced in some video games, and it's 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 well known enough there that it's that I was familiar with it going into this. Okay, I gotcha. But uh, so that's where a lot of that's going to be coming from, though. Yeah. Um, but how do you think it like as an overall film though? It sounds like you really liked it. Yes, I did. Yes, I. I don't know. It was really different. It, it was very different. It's it's we follow Kaguya a lot. It's basically Kaguya's story. It's kind of a coming of age story. But I liked how brisk it was because she's aging at an accelerated rate. So we don't spend so much time at the boring baby parts where it's just, ah, she's pooping. We got to change diapers. Oh, I don't know how to take care of a baby. It's just, that's done in like a day. We're already done and past the whole baby phase, which totally makes sense considering these people are seem like they're kind of on the older end. Like they couldn't have kids themselves anymore. That works perfectly for them and those characters and where they're at. And for me, the viewer who doesn't want to sit there and watch a cry poopy baby the whole time or watch a toddler, you know, learn how to walk. We can just brisk by that stuff and get to the interesting, like reckoning with my purpose and who I am as an individual middle part of this movie where the aging seems to kind of slow down and we have like a time jump in there even i think it says like three years later at some yep. point and the fable time skip yes <laughs> fable time skip on this episode of the japanese uh pillows on the windows and i i liked that i liked that how it was structured i liked how it was paced and metered out in that fashion and uh, i was i was i enjoyed it mm-hmm. that's good there were moments i think where hmm how do i want to say this there were parts where it seems like it could have not been as fun as it was but it was yeah or like it was there are parts where i guess maybe the way i want to word this where it it was a lot more fun than i expected it to be Ah, yeah like so i've seen this a lot actually i really really like this movie um the the but I remember not like really thinking, oh, this is going to be a fun movie. Yeah. It's going to be, I'm going to, this is art. I'm totally. going to see capital A art. Yeah. Um, but there are parts that are like genuinely like a really fun time. Uh, I loved her, uh, Kaguya, when she gets to the mansion and they're in the capital. She gets this servant, this really uh, like round, yes, goofy, really expressive lady. Mm-hmm who helps her and i really like like stuff with her is played up with a with a comedic effect that i think works really really well absolutely just because they're able to have her over express when mm-hmm. when the while you want kaguya to be more grounded she can be more of a cartoon yeah. character yeah um 
So there's just like little expressions where like her eyes are wide, like mm-hmm. what or something. It's and it's fun. It's fun. Yes. Um, the, where she's toying with the five princes. Yes, who all want to court her. Yes, is I think hilarious. Totally, because she plays them in such a ridiculous way, and then they try to cheat the game, the system, mm-hmm. and then. They fail every time they try to. Yeah. One of them like freaking kills himself trying. Yeah. Yeah. He falls face first into a pot and it yep. breaks his back and he dies, <laughs> which is like crazy. Yeah. Uh, all the other ones are like, I bought this thing and then just something interrupts that. Yep. Like, yep. I've brought the gold. I've brought the jeweled branch. But then the artists show up and say, we haven't been paid for this yet. <laughs> or... The one guy's asked to to burn the fire rat's cloak or whatever, yes. and it burns, and mm-hmm. you have to see him like be all all uh, fidgety and stuff because he's putting this very expensive piece of cloth in a fire. Yes, yes. And it's just like it's it's fun to watch these rich guys just kind of fall flat on their face. Absolutely. And it was really like those kind of moments are really enjoyable. Um, I think there are parts in this movie that are really like emotionally effective, both visually, like particularly visually, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that's always stood out in my mind was when she's at the, they're at the, the uh, naming party. Yep. And she's kind of hidden off because she can't be seen by the suitors or whatever. Mm-hmm. And she's upset. So she dreams about running away and you get this very like tense graphic sprint out of there she's trailing the cloaks behind her suddenly everything looks a lot more distorted the lines are violently moving around yes uh everything's black and white and just she's sprinting through the woods and things become a little more formless it's just really cool i think like this is this feels like a good use of like animation gives you kind of a certain way to handle things that you can't really do with a live action film and this seems like one of the perfect examples of where you can take animation and use it for something that's narratively strong and use it for something that's very like you're tapping into it as a form in a way that works really well. Yes. I think I've heard you mention this scene in the past, Michael, and I was very excited once it got there uh, to just, just to see what it was. And I was very caught off guard by just how different it looked and how different it felt, because like you're saying, it gets very blurry and distorted and it's she's just sprinting through a forest and it's almost like the it's almost like there's a camera and it's having a hard time keeping up with her because she's like just in the corner of the screen and we can still see her but most of the screen's like all this grass just breezing by really quickly and the way it meshes with the art style because the art style itself is kind of it's not like very well defined it's a little more soft than the rest of these Mm -hmm. because you've got more like colored pencils and watercolors that kind of bleed through the paper more so than the very uh, regimented lines and colors that we've seen before that I saw before at least and so that all blurs together in the scene where everything's moving very quickly but there's just enough shape and form to things that you can still make out that she's just freaking booking it. And I thought that that was very visually striking and emotionally striking. I agree. And then she, like, and then as far as like a narrative point, when it comes up, she exits the woods and she's all ta- like her clothes are all tattered and everything. Yes. Like she clearly looks down and on her luck and she goes to her old home 
and she's treated kind of like a beggar by the people who have taken up residence in her old home. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like that kind of like that feels like the rug kind of pulled out in a way. Yeah. Like it, and you can just feel like that's probably what she, it just it it works in that way i think and it's such that like i feel like this is affecting this affecting moment where she realizes she can't go back mm-hmm. and there's all that emotion attached to that and that's like the the single like there's there and there it is is that you can't go home someone's in your home yeah. that door is closed yeah and then that's it's all a dream stuff. or is it mm-hmm. i like Which that stuff. a lot of yeah I like that. It's it's simple, but it's something that could be in any other movie. But I I just like how they do it in this movie. I like how it's framed. I like how this is like a fairy tale. So it gets away with it in my brain because this isn't I don't know, like this isn't realism. This isn't supposed to be a real life thing in, in my brain. I can let this be a fairy tale that exists to tell this story we're in a story and i thought that that also reflected with the parents kaguya's uh bamboo farmer parents and how they just want the best for her and so the farmer man the dad is out and he gets a bunch of gold and he's like we we want the best life for our you know pseudo daughter who's royalty so we're gonna give her a royal life And so they try everything like the dad is trying to find her the best husband. I found the king wants you. Everything is perfect, despite the fact that's not what she wants. But he's just completely oblivious to it because he's just a happy dad trying to do the best for his daughter. And I feel like that's the exact kind of dad I'm probably going to be someday. And that warmed my heart. Good job, Kaguya's surrogate dad. You're trying your best. Yeah. And I think there's like... I think there's a little bit of like money corrupting there. Yes. Because I think he throws out a few lines about how what he could look like in a quarter's hat or yes. quartier's hat. Yes. But uh, it's interesting because I think that's like a core conceit here is, is, you know, how the parents try to care for this daughter. And they come like a different – they come to different answers mm-hmm. because the mom is way more about trying to recapture some of that old life that made yeah. Kaguya happy and made her happy. Um. While he's thinking, well, the answer has to be riches and fame and glory or whatever, yeah. nobility. Um, yeah. I like that, Michael. And then you get these, you get these moments where they're trying to make Kaguya into, into like an, uh, an upper crust princess. Yes. And she shows she can do it, but she doesn't want to her do father. It. Yeah, yeah. So and you get kind of like these – you get some kind of like – I don't want to say com- – well, maybe comedy, yeah, where she's like – instead of trying to practice characters, writing characters, she's she's in calligraphy. She's drawing little animals. Yeah. Like you get to – you get a sense at some points like she's actually trying to mess with uh, mm-hmm. the person who's supposed to be teaching her these things and that's kind of yes. fun. Fun. like, And that's kind of like a classic tension in these kinds of movies, right? Like it's it's not yeah. a unique here. That's That's been done before, you know. We have to reform the the – the common person into someone of upper society, like of, of mm-hmm. upper class yeah. society. And, and then there's, we make jokes out of that. Yeah. But, um, 
I think it's also I think what what's handled slightly differently is just how competent Princess Kaguya is at the end, you know, because she she doesn't want to do it. But then like she's learning the instrument. She doesn't want to do it. And then um, a mentor lady gives up. She's like, whatever, you're a lost cause. And then she starts playing completely flawlessly and beautifully. She is perfectly competent. And that is totally fine. We don't need an arc for that because she's a princess and she came out of a bamboo shoot. I get it. Yeah. And then it just becomes the conceit of it becomes more about what she wants to do. Yeah. As a character than what she can do as a character. Yes. Which I think makes for a better story and a better narrative arc. Yeah. It's weird to me. It's weird to me how just saying it's a fairy tale allows me and my brain to just let you get away with so much more. I don't get it, Michael. It's just totally. She aged really quick in this one part. Yep. It's a fairy tale. Gotcha. She can perfectly do this. Yep. Got it. It's a fairy tale. I wonder if it's, I wonder if it's because, okay. Like, okay, now we're playing by someone else's script for starters. Yeah. And then how much of it is that now that it's a fairy tale, you can kind of suspend belief. Like you can suspend this, this this necessity of having everything make sense by some kind of core logic yeah it's going to work according to this 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 story that we want to tell you this this theme we eventually have to impart on you Mm -hmm. um yeah how did you like the moon people michael oh they were fine yeah i think like it's it's a little bit of like a, a surprise ending yeah um it worked for me in that it didn't really take me too off guard. Like I was kind of expecting something like that. Yeah. And it works according to, maybe I've been conditioned for that because I've had to read like Chinese and Japanese literature and stuff like that from in college and, and stuff like that. Like you get things where you're, you're boot, you're Buddhist and you're Buddhist, uh, uh, I don't know if deities is the right word, but deities essentially yeah. can have like some kind of more mystical powers and mysticism. Like those mystical powers are going to be way different than what we kind of have logically pigeonholed in Western, like mm-hmm. Western storytelling where things are like where magic is something that's taught in a school and it comes out of a book and you say the spell and the spell happens. Instead, yeah. it's going to be way more like, you say a Buddhist prayer and suddenly there's seven arms popping out of you and you're a giant and there's three of you because you can clone yourself from your monkey hairs or something. Yeah. And like once you get to that point, it's like, okay, I, I, this, I can kind of freewheel here. Honestly, the Buddhist and Taoist gods can – Shinto gods can do whatever the hell they want. <laughs> yes. Like if, as once you get to that point, it's like, okay. Yeah. So I can suspend that belief and now we're just kind of having this this plot resolution here that's probably – aligned with the the story and it gives us our our finale yes yeah i don't know how the heck you end a movie like this and on paper the moon people come out of the sky and whisk her away and make everyone forget about who she was that works phenomenally well yeah it ties up all your loose ends really well it certainly does and i really like Uh, the song that they play i don't know why I just really like the music that they're playing as they come down because I really liked how chipper and upbeat the music they were playing was because yeah. it, it's 
it's like the ending of the movie that's supposed to be sad and it's supposed to be this thing that she's like so deathly afraid of is finally being taken away and all of this ending and it is all ending and this is the end of everyone's existence with her in their lives but they're just playing this happy tripper music coming down to bring her back to where she came from yeah well it's like a homecoming yeah for them. yeah yeah it's cool it is a cool song too i've always thought that i always like that's one of the things that you once it starts happening it's like oh yeah this song i remember liking this i still like this okay yeah and now buddhist character is going to invite her back and they put, <laughs> they throw the shawl on her they and do. it's like there's like this very forced kind of thing and yeah yeah but it works and like there's and i think they still give her kind of her own moments of closure she gets to be whisked away with uh i can't think of his name the the uh boy from the the village yes from when she was young so she gets kind of like that moment where she's like i would have been happy with you and yeah there's at least some kind of tying up there where you know she's unhappy well what would her happiness have been and there it is mm-hmm. um and you kind of get that he there's some resolution for him and that he would have been happy with her too but also you get this like well he's got a family and things like that and you see kind of where that's going mm-hmm. without going into detail too much you see he's just kind of he has his own life and he's made it something um, after like that crazy chicken <laughs> scene where he gets pulverized yes. and, but yeah, it all works. I like this movie a lot. Thanks for having me watch it, Michael. Yeah. Is this, did you ever think you would, did you think going into this, that this would have been one you would have liked or no? No, I, especially like the art style at the beginning. That's what really caught me off guard because I'm like, whoa, this looks really different. And this was what made in like 2012 or something like that. I think so. 2012, 2013. That's like so recent. I was caught so off guard by that, too. I'm like, the 2012 movie looks like this. And then I'm like, oh, this art style is actually pretty rad. And I ended up really enjoying it as it went along. Yeah. So this is the reason I kind of like lumped it into this. I wanted to lump it in here because this is. Takahata's final movie. He supposed he was supposed to retire after this, and then he kind of sticks around Studio Ghibli for a bit to kind of lend a hand, and then he passes away. Oh, I think man. two years ago he passed away. Um, so this is kind of like his swan song, and I wanted to get that out there, especially since he's like the number two guy at at, at Ghibli. If we're talking like Ghibli as a studio, oh. he's an important part of this of this. Um, are you good about Kaguya? Anything else do you think you want to get out there? Or do we want to move on to the next film? I'm and... good moving on. I'm ready to go. Okay. So speaking of swan songs, yes. this next one was supposed to be the send-off to Miyazaki. Miyazaki. It was going to be his last movie before he jumped back in now to do something else with Studio Ghibli. Um, with a reformed Studio Ghibli. But, uh, yeah, so The Wind Rises. It's the story of the creator of the Zero Fighter. Yes. And I think we're with this, we get into a lot of Miyazaki. It's interesting because Miyazaki's a pacifist. Ah, but he chose to make this movie about uh, the guy, a guy who made what at the time was one of the most uh, advanced fighters yeah. produced. Eventually, it, it kind of gets thumbed out of that role as the war goes on. But 
but for the time being it's like this very realized it's like a very advanced fighter and it's also kind of presented here as like this realization of someone's dream and as someone's work and like their their artistic vision being this perfect plane um and that way it kind of tracks to Miyazaki as a producer so it's kind of framed to be that kind of like final moment like this ode to an artist who had their dream realized by some by an artist who had his own dream realized yeah is I think the frame that kind of went into this um what do you think of it I was very frustrated by the first hour of The Wind Rises, Michael. Very really? frustrated, yes. For a very specific reason. But it, I found it very frustrating in a way that I feel like no one, no rational person should be frustrated this much. You don't like planes, do you? I'm sorry, Christian. I do like planes, Michael. I like oh, planes. okay, never mind. The part that frustrated me is this movie starts out with flashback sequence. So we've got boy flying around a plane, very clearly not really happening because he's pretty young and he's flying this plane in very dangerous situations, but it's all whimsical and fine. Good. Cool. Then uh, he goes up on roof with his sister and then we get another dream sequence where he meets his inspiration uh, Italian dude. Is that right? Yeah. 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 He's an Italian. I can't think of his name, but yeah, he was an Italian airplane maker. And so, like, the first 20 minutes of this movie is, like, 90% flashbacks. And then we cut to him on a train, and he's older now. And then train... Oh, no, that's right. Earthquake happens. And I didn't understand what the deal with this earthquake was. Because the screen goes black, and then we hear mouth noises. And so all of the planes... And all the dream sequences up to this point seem to use mouth noises, which I found very interesting. And that's something that my brain put a lot of stock in for some reason. And so okay. I associated mouth noises with dream sequence. And so we've got we've got planes that have propellers that are going like it sounds like someone's actively doing that with their mouth. And so I thought that that was like an association with dream world. But then we go to sequence on train and earthquake happens but it like cuts to a black screen and we see like a red ripple up the screen and it goes like it sounds like someone going and then like train uh, derails but the the earthquake looks like this ripple like this wave in the earth that like causes everything to ripple up and i was like oh okay so this is dream sequence because that's not how real earthquakes look i don't think and then mm train like stops and then goes poof and then like someone it's it's another mouth noise it's someone going poof and so i'm like okay so we are in dream world i've i'm hearing mouth noises earthquake was really weird but that must be a dream sequence and so i didn't fully grasp that we were actually in reality no longer in dream sequence until like 100 until like an hour into the movie where i we hear plane noise being made with mouths and it is actually supposed to be reality of the film and that's when i understood i got hung up on the mouth noises michael what's my problem <laughs> i don't know because i didn't think they sounded like mouth noises <laughs> uh i'm sorry christian it's okay michael it's okay it's the way my brain works and so I was really frustrated by that and then also the um like the romance stuff some of the romance stuff didn't yeah didn't like it was too 
I don't know. It was too sunshine and rainbows for me for some reason, despite the fact that she freaking dies to a really bad thing. But like this is why I said in Kaguya, like just saying it's a fairy tale and I'll write it all off and I'll be like, good job. I don't know why I can't get past that inferential leap where um, so his his love interest is a girl that he encounters on this train ride uh, that I thought was a dream sequence. And another thing that I thought contributed to it being a dream sequence is that there's this girl who's this woman who's injured and she can't move her legs broken. And so he grabs his suitcase and he's all heroic. He's like, don't worry, I'll save you. He grabs his ruler. He ta- he fastens it to her leg. He says, don't move it. I'll carry you. And so he freaking carries her to safety. And then on top of that, he gives them water by soaking his shirt in water and then he wrings it out in their mouths. And maybe that's a cultural thing. Maybe that's something that people did back then. But I was like, oh, this is so what no, human being does this? Thing. Do people do that? It's a, sur- it's a survival yeah, thing. It's a thing you can, OK, gotcha. Yeah, I think it's a survival thing you can do. Yeah. But that was just like yep. I, the, my brain was like dream sequence, dream sequence. Like this is this is all things that would happen in a dream. And then. It turns out that this woman that he did this heroic thing during or a uh, little girl who was around for that ends up being his love interest. And she has leukemia. Is it? Uh, tuberculosis. Tuberculosis. That's it. Thank you, Michael. You are you are a human encyclopedia. But what was frustrating is that it was just all like sunshine and rainbows. Like it depicted it like she was the reason or at least partially the reason why he was able to design this great plane. And she was, he was like, Oh, I always do a better job when you're holding my hand. I'm the best one handed plane designer ever. And I'm like, gee, this, and I looked it up. Jiro Horikoshi had is a real person. He had a real wife. This is not how he met that real wife. And I'm sure this is probably not how that happened. And I just couldn't get past that, Michael. <laughs> Help me get past this. I want to enjoy this movie so much. I don't remember like the the comments about being able to make the plane because she's there or something like that. I don't think you see, I guess that was me inferring, I think. OK, OK. Because I don't really I, – those synapses didn't fire for me that way. Yes. It was more – because I think some of that's a little a little crazy in a way. Um, it's also the romance side of it is not the part that really – that ever really stuck out to me and ever really stuck with me through this whole movie. Yeah. It's a lot of – on first watch, it was a lot of the creation stuff. It was a lot of yes. the like, like – an artist making his masterpiece kind of thing. What is that? How does he get oh. there? What does that look like? What are the struggles that go on with that? Um, and that was still very much the same with the rewatch. Yes. With some other things thrown in. Yeah. Like, so there was one thing that really, really stood out to me this time around. Ooh, interesting. And I'm wondering what you thought about this. Um, <laughs> There are moments where they're in Germany and they see the secret police chase someone down and beat them. Ooh, yes. And it's like you and it look, and it looks very dynamic like visually speaking because yes, we like see it through like shadows these, which is really crazy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's moments like that and then you get to the part where he's at this mountain retreat and he meets the German. Mhm guy who's like this really colorful like did you watch the dub or the sub i watched uh the the dubbed version because freaking hbo max doesn't have english subs on the japanese dub for this one movie what were they thinking michael 
I don't know because I had the same problem. But Garbage. it is. I yeah yeah. But voiced by Werner Herzog. He, he talks like he 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 talks like that very like German way. Yeah. But uh, uh, he brings up like like you you can say what you want here. You can be free from the 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 imperial designs you know, the bombs dropping in china or whatever yes. japan will fall and germany will too the nazis are punks kind of thing yeah and then the secret pol- then there's like this other par- thread where it suddenly becomes a secret police there like the secret police are involved now too yes because they know hiroshi had met with his german at some point mm-hmm. and like there was some very weird ways like that felt different in 2020 than it did in when i saw this maybe back in like i think 2014 2015 yeah and or whenever i I don't remember exactly when this movie came out but i remember seeing it in theaters and that not having the kind of effect it definitely has now yeah um i don't know man it just it felt like ominous yes to have to have that just like spelled out like your country will fall kind of thing. Your, your, your secret police are on the loose. Nationalism will destroy you or something to that effect. Uh-huh. You're fighting these wars overseas and it's like, mm, <laughs> I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> Absolutely. That character is uh, very weird. He has a weird like mystique about him. That yeah. weird German Werner Herzog guy. Yeah. You can't put a pin in him. He's, he's weird. It almost feels like – and then when you kind of talk about how like the mingling with the dream sequences yeah. and the reality isn't fully clear or wasn't really fully clear for me. That for me was a moment where it's like maybe that oh, yeah. that conversation was – we were in that same boat there. Yes. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. And it's weird because later on they bring up that, oh, he was a dissident and he's being hunted by the secret police. Mm-hmm. So like clearly those beliefs were real. But at the time it felt like maybe this was – we were in a dream sequence where he's kind of hinting at like like he's playing a con- like he's playing Hiroshi's conscious yeah in a way yeah yeah, yeah. and and telling him the things that that the plot won't let him mm-hmm. say yeah or hear or won't let conversations like that happen but they want you to there's an a very like there's an intention on Miyazaki's part for you to have that that the that thought while watching this movie yes and i was worried about it while i was watching this because i wasn't sure whether i didn't remember it and i didn't i wasn't sure re-watching it whether or not we get into kind of like the shady or underlying politics here because there's a part they go to nazi germany yep. and it's not it's very clear it's nazi germany yep. and to talk about how beautiful these planes are <laughs> yeah. he's making a plane for <laughs> for the japanese empire yeah. which at this time was very violently uh, invading china and later much of asia Yeesh. and so i'm glad they included that and when i when we came across it but it was one of those things that really stood out to me as like a lot eerier in 2020 yeah absolutely Yeesh. i didn't think about it that way michael yeah i do like um you mentioned earlier the plane stuff Really liked the plane stuff where I really, really liked the design plane stuff 
I liked how mm-hmm. much light this movie sheds on the kind of iterative, the iterative design process behind something as uh, what I can only assume is ridiculously complex as making an aircraft that has to fly and has to, you know, outperform or at least perform in step with the greatest minds across the globe. And you're just this Jiro is just one of them, you know, trying to make the best aeronautical engineering you possibly can. Yeah. And it's it sometimes it comes down to something as simple as flat rivets in the plane. And mm-hmm. I think they executed that extremely well. Or there's like there's like abstract sequences too where it'll show like pieces clicking into place in like almost like a like a blueprint type fashion in a really mm-hmm. cool way that I also really dug. Yeah, like it it's it gets I think into a little more like this, this movie kind of opens the door where if someone else can, was making it, you could get into the minutiae of plane design. Yeah. And you could become this very dry, like, how do planes work? Well, you need to generate lift kind of thing. But instead, you get these, like, even more particular details. Like, how do we get this, this strut to work? Mm-hmm. But they present in a way where instead it's this character proving himself and, yeah. like, it's more of like an aha moment for a character figuring out how to make a plane work rather than this is how the plane works. And you don't get into kind of this, this dryness that you could very easily oh, get yeah, into yeah. by just trying to describe how a plane worked and how this person made it better. Mm-hmm. Like he makes it about, you know, different, he, he makes it a character moment essentially every time. Yeah. And I think that helps make these things that can seem kind of very silly, mundane in particular, like the strut, like the, the flat, um, rivets but make it seem like it, it's more make it make it more of like a, a good moment as far as the narrative like as far as narrative goes makes it a narrative moment makes it a point where the character can develop and i think that's good yeah very good point yeah i definitely agree right there with you on that one michael word so at the end of the day, how did you feel about this movie overall? Once you kind of worked through the the dream sequence versus reality, I liked it for the for the positive stuff. I did, I did really okay. like the positive stuff, and I think if I gave it a rewatch, I think I would like it a, a decent amount more now that I okay. my brain has now waded through and understood what isn't isn't a dream sequence. But I also, despite like all the serious stuff, like it gets a little technical with uh, like the, the rivets and struts and stuff but there's also some levity to it with like angry short boss man who is very much a stereotype but i'm totally for it in this movie i like him as a foil to a very smart man who can seemingly do no wrong and he's got a very angry boss man who's like get back to work are you done with those designs yes here they are well tell me when you're actually done with them tell me right away when you're done with them next time this is great i like that foil and then they also he does Miyazaki does that thing again where yeah. he makes all of his characters sympathetic yeah. in a way. Yeah. Like even though this guy is like the the whip cracking foreman yes. who's really demanding, they make him very they make him into someone who very much at least cares about her yes. he, he cares about people and they make him sympathetic. Absolutely. And they make him very, very likable. Not only because he's a, a fun comic relief character, but because they also portray him as a genuinely good person. Yeah, yeah, he takes Jiro in when he's got nowhere to go. Exactly, yeah. 
That's great. And you can tell he's kind of like nudging him along. He's he's trying to nurture him as a. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's not like working against him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I like that a lot. It just seems it's just genius, Michael. Like the the way that they reincorporate these characters. You know, like in any other movie, mm-hmm. Angry Boss Man would just be Angry Boss Man side character, and then person that Jiro stays with would be an entirely different character and not related because making these two things be believable together, making a character both be angry boss man and nice nurturing guy who's like almost facilitating his rise to stardom, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It's hard to make. That's hard to reconcile. It's hard to smash those both of those things together, but they found a way to make it work. Yeah. So then are you good on the wind rises? Can we move on kind of to the last mm-hmm. The big finale. <laughs> the big finale. Uh, so I wanted to try to sneak in a third director because Ghibli is more than just uh, – it's just it's more than just Miyazaki and it's more than just Miyazaki and Takahata. Uh, so I threw in when Marnie was there, yes. which is like the last movie Ghibli made before it was kind of – reorganized re-put together mm-hmm. and is where it is now and this was uh hiromasa yonebayashi's film he's made one other one with ghibli before this um marnie always stood out to me more than that other movie uh with uh arietti and which is why i kind of plugged it in here and mm-hmm. i think it's deal like i think it's clear I guess, I don't know. I want to hear what you think first before I try to make sense of when Marnie was yep. there. I thought it was all right. I didn't hate it. Yeah. I didn't love it. Yeah. I was all right with it. I thought some stuff was handled pretty well. I thought some stuff was not handled as well. What did it's you think, Michael? not very subtle, huh? No, it is no. not subtle. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this movie is like... I guess some historical context for me personally here is I, this was like one, this is the only movie when I was in college, I wrote a review for it at one point. I think I said it was okay. Yeah. It was like, this is an okay send off to the studio. It's a competently made movie or whatever. But I remember also doing what I did in lead up to this podcast (gasps) where I binge watched basically as much of the Ghibli catalog as I could before. So I could, so I felt like I could speak with some authority. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this like has that memory in my mind, but, um, it's, it's, it's all right. Like, it's like you said, it's all right. I think it's, this is pretty par for the course as far as like a long list of competently made anime movies. Like it's not, I don't think it's necessarily bad, but it's not, it doesn't stay. I don't think it has quite the same punch that like a lot of these other movies we watched had a lot mm-hmm. of these, like, I don't think it gets quite as colorful or out there. Some of those, I don't think it kind of, it, it definitely feels like it's a different voice. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not a subtle voice. No. <laughs> I mean, it spells it out pretty quickly a couple of times there like, yes, what its characters are feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not you're not seeing like these majestic dreams of planes flying you're not seeing these environments where where they're 
like like to me they like there there's close-ups of animals and they're acting like animals it feels natural it looks natural yes. Yes. but it's not quite the way it would be in a Miyazaki movie where it's natural but also you're interacting with it in some way mm-hmm. like it's just there to show what's going on and it feels like different in that way and I guess yeah those are those are kind of my my thoughts on this it's it's not it feels like a, a weirdly I don't want to say unsatisfactory, but kind of like a, and I also don't want to say disappointing, but maybe I do mm-hmm. way to end or way to have potentially have ended the studio or ended kind of where it ended things for Ghibli. And obviously it's not the end. Yeah. I think after this, they go on to, they have a pretty large role in making this friend, this Dutch movie, the red turtle. Oh, interesting. And now they're putting together another movie. And in that same period of time, some folks split off, including the director for this movie. He goes on to do something else. There's, uh, he, he released a movie afterwards, Mary and the witch's flower. And mm-hmm. which is very much like it, it has that Ghibli visual DNA in a lot of ways, but it doesn't have like the, it doesn't feel like it's, it's tapping into the same kind of, like mm-hmm. creative spark yes. that folks like Takahata and and Miyazaki were able to bring to the fold. Yeah, I think that caught me off guard as a normie on the outside looking in and seeing like just the poster art or the key art for when Marnie was there, where it's you know Marnie and Anna back to back holding hands, C in the background, very mm-hmm. epic. Like this is something. This is the biggest send off we could possibly have. This is the story. I don't know. It's that's what it seems to stand in stark contrast in my brain with like the content of the movie in this in this movie where this girl's all depressed and she's like she calls another girl a fat pig, but we're still supposed to feel bad for her. And I, I don't know. The HBO Max description called it Ghibli Gothic. <laughs> uh, so bad though no that's such a bad way to put it oh hbo max first you mess up the the subtitles on on, on when rises and then yep. you try to coin ghibli gothic and <laughs> they do okay um i actually one of the things that stood out to me was this portrayal of depression and i actually kind of liked it in a way yes um it felt real Yes. In a way that made sense to me as someone who has and sometimes still does deal with anxiety, can deal with with anxiety and depression and some pretty like – it, it, it rung with me in that way even if it's a little over the top and even though she spells it out pretty, pretty bluntly. Yeah. Um, but – it's also it's just it's it's as far as like a narrative goes this feels a little underwhelming i like it felt underwhelming it felt like the the setup for that was a little underwhelming um i like some of the give and take between dream world and reality here that they've got going yeah. on and between those and like ghost story and mm-hmm. they they leave the door open where it's like did it really happen yeah um which is kind of cool but it's not like at the end of the day, this is a, to me, it was a pretty forgettable 
well put together anime movie. Yeah, I'm definitely with you on the, the, the depression front where the movie starts with her like having an emotional breakdown. And so she goes to yeah. the doctor with her mom. And like the thing that Anna says after her breakdown at the doctor's office is, I'm sorry, I made you spend money on me again, mom. And then she's just like, why would you say that? And that's I'm sure this has happened like 200 times with, you know, parents and their depressed kids is taking them into the doctor. And then the kid's like, why do you have to spend money on me going to the doctor? You're wasting money. I could just picture that scenario happening so many times. Yeah. Again, like those are the parts that felt. It just at times it felt a little over the top. Like there's that moment where she kind of sprints out of the 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 festival yeah. and she just has this monologue and to me it was like yeah it felt like like it's like yes but yeah also really just kind of laying it out there huh yes. like we're not yes I, I i don't like as a storytelling mechanism i don't like being told things i like mm-hmm. being shown things mm-hmm. and this felt very much like being told things even though yeah that's that's yeah, like that's not too far away from what it's like, but it's still very just, I don't know. Yes. I think it's a narrative mechanism. I didn't really like it. I definitely felt the same thing when she was running away from festival because she just called a girl a fat pig. And then uh fat pig girl is like, oh, you are who you say you are, aren't you? Or something like that says something as like a quip back is like a way to dismiss it. But then she's running away crying. And then like she in her monologues or I forget if it's in her monologues or she says out loud, but like the, the uh, cringy typical depression dialogue where it's like, uh, I, I am who she's who I think I am. And that's like a piece of crap and everyone hates me and I hate myself and I'm useless. And I'm just a mean person who would say that to someone. And that was yes i felt the same uncomfortable emotions during that similar sequence yeah how'd you feel about marnie marnie yeah it was interesting it was interesting the characters in this movie that aren't on are just very happy and it's very like wholesome in a very weird way and i thought it it uh contrasted well with Anna and her depression where her aunt and uncle take her in and they're all just like, they're just super nice. Like whose aunt and uncle is this nice? Like they, they, some other parent says they're calling her a fat pig that she called someone a fat pig. And they're like, Oh yeah, we'll talk to her about it. And then they see her and they're like, don't worry about it. And (laughs) that's, that's just so weird. And Marnie is similar where she's just so happy and she's bubbly and she wants to welcome Anna in and the train just keeps going and Sorry, <laughs> the train's the back. back. Yes. Is, ah, the stops. train. Uh, I have my window closed because I'm sure I'd be hearing it over here too. But Would you? Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've, we've come to have a train here too. So Did you? yeah. Yeah. But I liked, uh, I liked Marnie's personality who mm-hmm. Marnie actually was in the end. Really <laughs> frustrated me. Same. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Gosh, it was such a weirdly, I don't know, I don't think convenience right, the right way for it, but it felt like such a, uh, like it feels like we spend these time, this time to to build up a character. We spend this time to like try to build a natural relationship between them. Yep. 
But then there's like this this end reveal where it's like, ha ha, mm-hmm. it was grandmama the whole time. Yeah. And it's it just it wipes that all away. This is like this is too convenient. This is too totally. neat. This isn't like Yes. Like I hate this. Yeah. I didn't even So there's like a part like towards she she mentions like in halfway through the movie or something that she was adopted and so her parents didn't really love her or whatever. And I was like, oh, OK, Marnie probably ties into that somehow. And so I, I got on the train of thought that Marnie was her mom. And then I was like, uh, that's it's a little forced. But I guess you could you could fool me if that was the case, you know, use it as a statement to say her mom didn't really, you know, hate her or whatever. Her mom was a little girl like she was and, you know, wanted to wanted the best for her, despite the fact that she didn't end up raising her. But it's not even her mom. It's her grandma. And her grandma is just like she's having these hallucinations or whatever. This is happening because her grandma told her a bunch of stories about when she was little. And so there's your movie. Yeah. Okay, but I think it's a little they kind of leave it to be a little more than that because there are these moments where it's like. Oh, her shoes out here on the post that yes. she lost. Yeah. Is it a spooky ghosty? Yep, yep, yep. But uh, yeah, it's. it felt like it just kind of invalidated everything in a way. It felt like it was going to be a good, natural, like, relationship that's built. It's maybe, okay, a little weird because it's, maybe is she a ghost? Is she, what is she? Mm-hmm. But then it just kind of dilutes that so fast and so immediately that... Yeah, I don't know. It was also it seemed a little inconsistent. I guess I, I've only seen the movie once. I can't speak as to whether or not it was um, it all made sense together. But uh, there's there's a sequence where Anna takes Marnie to the uh, silo and then Marnie starts addressing Anna as her as Marnie's husband. And so her. That, boo. Yes. And so that was like, OK, it seemed like they were they were getting at what the ultimate answer to what Anna and Marnie is, because it, she's referring to her as the husband. So did she did she have like a relationship with the husband or something? Did is she like the surrogate husband in all of her interactions with Marnie? But we find out that's not the case. And so it's that doesn't that's a puzzle piece. There's an empty puzzle piece in my brain and there's not a perfectly fitting piece to go in that spot, if that makes mm-hmm. sense, as to what this Marnie stuff was all about. Yeah. No, and I'm, I'm with you on that. What, uh... I will say that at the end of this movie... Yeah? I did pop out a little tear or two. <gasps> uh, when she... I think there's this part where Anna has to come to terms with herself that I think I like in a way um, it's not I don't know it's not like you can just it, in some ways it feels like you just kind of whisked away depression and that's not how that yeah. happens but there's this moment where she comes to term with her foster parents mm-hmm. and I think there's this final part where she introduces her foster mom as her mom. Yes. And that for me was, I lost it. I was like, Oh no, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I said, I wasn't going to cree, but here I am. That is good stuff, Michael. That is good stuff. That's how you would, 
That's how you do something like this. Absolutely. No, because she and she didn't have to tell us. I guess is the other part of it. Yeah, and that's like it felt like something that just kind of she came to terms with naturally, rather than having the plot explain. Like that felt like it felt like a natural development, rather than have you know someone who knew Marnie explain the plot to mm-hmm. the character, and then by doing so, explaining it to the audience. Totally. Um, some of the side characters are fun too i yeah. really liked the quiet fisherman yes he is good yes um really i just like the quiet fisherman yeah 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 <laughs> the parents were the 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 aunt and uncle yeah that she was she was staying with were fun yeah. like how he's just when you when you mentioned the 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 part where they just brush off the fact that she called uh the one girl a fat pig. Yes. The the fact the uncle was just like fat pig, ha 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 ha, mm-hmm. or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and and the aunt was like, "Don't laugh," or or something. It was fun. It was like this is natural interactions, mm-hmm. but just it, it stuff like that I really liked. Yeah, um, it's interesting to me. So this is actually based off a novel that oh, I'm wow. pretty sure is. An English novel? Oh, weird. Okay. Yeah, it is based off a British novel, which is why the mansion – you could conceivably have like an old man, an old English-style yep. mansion in Japan because of what happened when Japan modernized and tried to ah. westernize. Like, there's, there's room for that there. Got it. But – and there's also room for the very English-looking silo. <laughs> yeah. But that, that's kind of why that's what that is. Got um, it. Um, it looked I visually though it, it was a nice like it looked like a nice portrayal of a small town as someone who's lived in and very much regularly now now visits small towns yeah. in New England where there are like only where there are conceivably only a couple hundred people it it looks like that it feel that's what it feels like that's what it kind of can look like um and it just it, like it visually worked for me, even though it didn't. I think tap into the same kind of sense of space that someone like Miyazaki or Takahata were able to kind of tap into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the characters. I like. I said earlier, I like how nice everyone is, and it's really weird, but it's also very pleasant. It mm-hmm. it, it helps offset some of the friction that comes from Anna and um, Anna and her depression, where. Yeah. Like you said, the the quiet uh, the quiet seaman, the quiet fisherman, mm-hmm. and he doesn't say anything, but he happily rows her to and from wherever she needs to go. She needs a spot to be to be quiet, and he's just like, "Yep, yeah, hop on the boat, whatever." And mm-hmm. he'll sail out, and they'll be hunky dory, or the older uh, woman painting on the on the hill. She's painting the house, and she's totally happy talking to Anna. And she's happy to tell her about Marnie or Marnie. Or Anna is always staring into the bedroom window of this house. And the girl who's yeah. moving into the house is like, oh, are you Marnie? Come on in. And that's yeah. very weird. That's like very like nice spirited of her. And I, I don't know. I thought that was that was pleasant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I like kind of the way things end where. Uh, 
you know, she says her farewells. Yeah. And then the, 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 the goofy little girl who mm-hmm. lived in Marnie's old room is on the boat with the quiet fisherman. So it's like, okay, they've built these connections yes. there. So this is now the, the normal for this tiny little village in, yeah. in rural Japan. Give yeah. her like a nice moment because it's like now they have their connection, especially since they made a point of showing kids kind of picking on the older fishermen. Yeah. Yep. And it, it felt nice to see, okay, he still has a companion. Yeah. And she's still out doing whatever she's doing. And yeah. When Marnie was there isn't complete crap is what you're saying, Michael. No, it's it's a fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's there. They tried. It's not as strong as other things, but it's not like a... Like, I've seen some genuinely bad anime movies. This is good. That's good. That's good. A little disappointing coming from a studio with the cloud of Ghibli, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's a... It is a disappointing, I think, proto-finale, even though it's no longer the finale. We'll see what Miyazaki does with it, but... It was a very weird, I think, note to end on, or a very, yeah, a very weird note to end on. Yeah. How how big was Marnie? Was there stateside? Was that in, was it in like uh, theaters and whatnot? I think it was in like art house theaters. Like I saw it, I saw it in a in a, a city, like a, a big city ah. kind of artsy theater. Okay, gotcha. Interesting, but. Not so much. I don't know how much of a general release it got, or if it, or if it did get a general release. How much of that was just like a yeah. for a limited time and one for one week mm-hmm. we're here in the states before we go to DVD or Blu-ray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a path a lot of uh, anime films typically take once they come stateside. Gotcha. And now the Ghibli movies just go to HBO Max. Thanks, HBO. Yeah, thank you, HBO. <laughs> For not now, HBO Max right titles. now, HBO Go or the other HBO one. It's <laughs> HBO Max. <laughs> uh, Great stuff. Something. Thanks, HBO. Go watch Overlords. Love Country. Go. I don't know. <laughs> Lovecraft Country. Something. 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 Yeah. HBO. Game of Thrones. Something. Everyone Game loves season th- eight. Oh yeah. Ho oh, ho! Wasn't it disappointing? Ha 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 ha! I I know pop culture. Um, so I guess yeah, this would be. We have talked for two and a half hours about anime. Now I have forced wow. you to watch eight anime movies. Christian, how Jeez. are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling happy about the journey we went on, Michael. It wasn't about the destination, but mm-hmm. about the journey on the way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh god damn it okay um how do you do you think you'll you'll kind of flesh this go go out from here now you're gonna pick on a couple other movies or anything like yeah, that yeah absolutely i'm really curious about miyazaki's track record because okay i have seen you know i saw his big swan song in the in the in the case of uh the wind rises mm-hmm and I think watching some of Miyazaki's other stuff has kind of retroactively given me more of a curiosity and interest in the spirited away, despite the fact that I've already seen it, because it's just so different from all of this stuff in a yeah. very fascinating way. And so I'm really curious to see more of that, that Miyazaki creativity that he seems to carry with him throughout all the movies that I've seen of his so far. So I'm really I'd really like to dip into some of his other stuff and see what he's put out there. Okay, okay. 
I haven't ruined the 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 medium of anime for you. Absolutely not. I think you probably could have done a heck of a lot worse than this, Michael. Okay. Cool. All right. I succeed. Haha. <laughs> but no, I'm glad I'm really glad to hear that you like this stuff. What if I threw an impromptu sprock at you? What how would you rank these eight movies? Oof. Okay. Oh boy. Oh yikes. Okay, so I'd put Lupin the Third, it would be my last. Okay. That would be last for me. Um, so that would be number eight. Did we watch eight movies? We sure did. Holy crap, we watched eight movies. Um Lupin the Third. <laughs> On the bottom, um, right above that, Marnie was there uh, mm-hmm. at number seven. At number six, probably put The Wind Rises just because I couldn't get over that stupid uh, flashback crap for some reason. Uh, number five. Okay. What would go number mm-hmm. five, Michael? I'd probably put uh, Princess Princess Mononoke. I'd put it at number okay. five. Uh, number four, what are we feeling? The top half now. What what bubbled mm-hmm. up to the mm-hmm. top half, Michael? Um, well, you've got uh, Castle in the Sky left. You've got Princess Kaguya left. You've got uh, Nausicaa in the Valley of the Wind left. We do. Uh, and Grave of the Fireflies. Man, it's so hard. Uh, these are all fantastic movies. I would probably put Nausicaa at number four, if only because mm-hmm. of that medieval sequence that I complained about for no reason earlier. Uh <laughs> But Castle in the Sky, those those two are kind of neck and neck for me. But whatever, Castle in the Sky, number three, number two, Princess uh, Kaguya, and then number one, Grave of the Fireflies. I would probably say Grave of the Fireflies was my favorite film. How would you sprocket these movies, Michael? I'm trying to. I need to. I need to uh, square the fact that (laughs) your top two are the two that are very uh, the uh, the two not Miyazaki ones. Yes. Oh my! Isn't that interesting? That's something that is Um, fascinating. Uh oh. Oof. So at the bottom for me, uh, probably Marnie. And yes. then after that would be Grave of the Fireflies. I think seven. talking about it here has kind of made me a little more excited about it. But at the same time, I'm not. Yeah. No, you've I seen this still, movie like three times, right, Michael? Yeah, sure have. Um, uh, I, the, the central conceit definitely wears off after the second time. <laughs> I bet. Uh, you can only kill a kid so many, so many times. Um, Yikes. Number six number from six. each movies. Number six, six, six. What's the six, best or the worst six, ones? Six. Oof. Mm-hmm. What were the other ones that we we had? Prince, Tale of Princess Kaguya. We had one or, okay. Uh, number six for me is Castle in the Sky. Got it. I really liked it. I think the part that kind of irks me about it is that I really don't like just how I I feel like we get so much more. I feel like Miyazaki is so good with characters. And I feel like when your villain is not that, it it seems like that detracts for me that that was a disappointment. Did Um, he suffer from the Marvel problem? uh, No, it's not that bad. Good. Um, Number four. Number four. Wait. No, number five. Number four. You're on number four, I believe, Michael. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I think you're right. Yes, number five. <laughs> uh, Lupin the third. Lupin the third. Rounding off the bottom half. Yeah, rounding off the bottom half, but I still like it. I th- at the end of the day, I still like all of these movies in some Absolutely. capacity, for what that's worth. But uh, So now that we're there, we can go to the top half here. Cream of the crop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Number four is going to be Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind. Nice. I really, really liked it. Um, 
Number three is probably The Tale of Princess Kaguya. Ooh, we're getting to the good stuff now, Michael. Uh, yeah, number number two, and these are actually two of my favorite mm-hmm. movies in general. Yes. Uh, number two will be The Wind Rises. Ooh. I really, really love kind of what's happening there. I really, really love this idea of like... Of, of trying to frame this as a story of an artist realizing his dream of, of that kind of thing yeah and i also it helps that i like planes a lot and then also kind of this added context of you know this is all happening as japan careens towards world war ii and mm-hmm. and nationalism is kind of taken to some kind of rampancy and now there's a secret police mm-hmm. and and contrasting and and with that there's also references to the nazism that's happening on the other part of the world and how that kind of shook me in a way that i didn't expect that's that's number two and number one is going to be the tale of uh, not tale of wow uh <laughs> princess mononoke princess mononoke yeah. aka star wars in the woods with naked baby yeah spirits yeah, chubby butts. Yeah, if only Star Wars had chubby butts, huh? You're telling me, Michael. Gosh, hmm. why aren't there more of them? Like, it could have been the Ewoks, but better. Oh. <laughs> Ewoks got back, Michael, if only. <laughs> Wicket's got the thicket. <laughs> what a great way to end putting pillows on the windows. <laughs> yeah, this is this is good. Okay, next time, hopefully, Tucker and Carly are back. You don't have to hear from us anymore. Yeah. Uh, just... Think about thickets, wickets, wickets with a thicket. Uh, anyway, um, yeah. Christian, thank you for joining me on this. I'm glad I didn't ruin anime for you. Uh, for what it's worth, this is dramatically, uh, Ghibli typically is pretty different from the typical crop. Yeah. In a lot of ways, but it's, it's, I'm glad that you were able to enjoy this. No, thank um, you, Michael. Thank you for being probably the best steward I can think of on this oh. journey that I took. Alrighty, and if we need to be back, we'll be back. I'd be looking forward to it, Christian. Hey, you and you and me both. <laughs>